Hello and welcome to Ghost Divers. This is an anime podcast on the Export Audio Network. I am your co-host, Neve, and I'm joined, as always, by your other co-host, Connor. Hello. And today we are talking about Psychopaths, episodes 9 through 16. Um, and for some reason, when I broke down these episodes, I thought it was going to be 888. <laughs> I don't know why, but it's mm-hmm. eight, it, next time it's going to be six episodes, which will, which will be nice. But <laughs> Yeah, I think that works well. Because there's an added, uh, th- there's an added length bonus when we have to talk about the end, yeah, and assess everything in light of the the ending. Uh, but also this, I, th- I mean, I'm assuming what we've gotten to might continue on next time, but I, I still feel like we've gotten to like a, um, this was a great stopping point. Yeah, that that we, <laughs> uh, I was admiring that as we, uh, as I finished watching. Because you had asked me, like, hey, you've seen this series before. Should we cut off anywhere, or is this fine? And then I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, whatever, it's fine. I didn't uh, I didn't take the time to recall, like, where a good cutoff point would be. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, whatever, it's, it's, it's fine. Uh, but then it ended up being really fine, because <laughs> 16 is perfect. So, uh yeah, there, there I definitely would not have wanted to end it at 15, and the, the break between 8 and 9 was, was correct. Yeah. So. So, let, so let me ask you this. Are you, uh, are you very confused at this point about, like, how there's going to be six more episodes of this show, given ep- <laughs> what happens in episode 16? Um... Yes and no. Um, part of it is like m- my assumption would be that the whole we get like the confrontation that the the series starts with, and mm-hmm. I kind of assumed that that would be more the into ending. the the end game. Um, we've already had an episode jump back in time, so I don't know if that will happen. If that will be a part of it. Um, but the other reason, so that's like one way that this could like extend into six more episodes. But the other thing is, it seems like we're going to find out what this, we, the audience is going to find out what the civil system is soon because uh, a few characters, I mean, who knows what has happened to them, but a few characters have figured it out or I've seen what <clears throat> it is. Um, I think we have a good guess <laughs> and so about what's happened to them. If they're going to show the civil system. I could see it being more interesting to do that and explore what that means rather than just have it as a, a surprise at the end. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. Yeah. 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 I think that, uh, also like the point, really the one thing that's, that's odd is that they've gotten like, uh, they've arrested Makishima. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the one part that feels odd. Cause I just assumed that like that confrontation and like specifically his arrest that he would be like more active, but also, I mean, this is kind of a, like a manhunter. So are, are they going to be like doing other stuff? Makishima's already got stuff in the works. They're like seeing him in prison, trying to figure out, or, you know, what's going to happen here. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see there's a lot of room in there too. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but like, it feels like they haven't gotten to the concluding point. Or gotten close enough that I feel like, oh, that's going to get concluded soon with, like, what's happening with Akane or Kogami or whatever. So, mm-hmm. there's still a lot to explore. Really, it's just the 
Makishima has seemingly been arrested. That's the the slightly surprising thing to have happened already. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's that's the big one. Given how much plot happens, uh, you know, very quickly in this show, uh, I just thought it would be amusing for the first time viewer uh, when we hit episode 16 to actually think about, like, how is six more episodes of the show going to happen? Uh, yeah. Again, given how like tightly plotted it is uh, and how, how quickly it, it kind of moves. Um, but there are in, indeed six more episodes. So yeah, uh, we, I will wait eagerly for uh And an arresting Makishima does not address all the questions raised by the existence and actions of Makishima. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I guess a way that this could end would be they finally catch him at the end and they throw him in jail and then they just act like it's over and then the series ends. But I feel like that would be a worse ending. So Yeah. Yeah, I'd say there's still a few a few unsolved problems. Yeah. <laughs> at this point. Um so yeah, that's uh I think that's a good a good starting point uh for us to kind of get into it. Um I think the other, like, prefatory comment that uh, I'd make, this is me reflecting on um, having done one discussion episode already. I'm realizing that I think Psychopaths is a series that will, let me back up. Any show we bring on Ghost Divers, we're obviously presupposing that there's a good amount (laughs) that we can say about it. Um, so, you know, anything we've covered, uh, we think that there's a lot to be said and, and I think there has been since we, uh, as evidenced by our episode links. Um, and then obviously the other criterion is that we, we like it already, or like one of us thinks that the other one might like it or at minimum, like we think it's interesting and, and worthy of talking about. Um, yeah. but, but especially with psychopaths, I think the scope of the discussion is kind of a challenge uh, because it's a series that is like very explicitly engaged with things such as ethical philosophy, political philosophy, philosophy of mind uh, in, in broad ways. And then that's not even to like mention it's also very concerned with specific uh, problems such as like psychology and mental health, policing, crime, punishment, um, all of those things. And then you also have like uh, the numerous illusions, all of which you could uh, chase down. And then uh, if you do um, are tend to be very illuminating uh, as as I think we we kind of uh, came across last time, and I'm sure we will <laughs> come across again to- today. Um, but uh, with all that said, it, it's it's tough to wrangle and structure the the discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, and then you know, in addition to that, it's a series that 
is I find very moving in certain ways. So I have kind of strong emotional responses to certain um, aspects of it. Um, yeah. And then as we all know, like when I have a strong emotional response to something, that's when I start really babbling. <laughs> so um, that also presents a structural challenge. Uh, <laughs> but I think we, uh, I think last time we like framed up a lot of, a lot of these larger questions and then maybe um, we won't treat them so exhaustively. Uh, maybe we don't get around to it or like it doesn't happen uh, in the course of our conversations. Um, but I like at minimum to gesture with this series. I think at some points there's going to be things where we can just like gesture at like, Hey, the series is engaging with this, like these concepts. Um, and then maybe we're not going to be able to like, we don't get around to unpacking it, uh, so sufficiently. Um, even though we'd like to. So, yeah. um, now that I've accepted that, <laughs> uh, and I've, and I've stated it at the top here, um, I feel less, my hue is clearer and I feel less anxiety about like the, the task, <laughs> uh, ahead of us. Um, I don't know how much you, you agree with, with those comments um. or if that's been your experience. I mean, one is I think like every podcast and every episode is its own little beast. Uh, and we, we tackle a lot of episodes of anime, but also like the, the right amount where, where it is just going to go long. Like if we, if we were doing entire series per episode, we just have to abridge things in a way, uh, that doing it this way, like invites to like, it's possible for us within three to four hours to talk about every episode. So we're going to do it. <laughs> um, and we never also intended for this podcast to be regularly three hours. We, we didn't, but I also knew in my, I, I based this off of like my idea for this podcast. I think I've said this before, um, was on waypoint. They did, uh, a series on Evangelion and they didn't quite do like, I w just decided on a rougher, like, six to eight episodes. That's what I want us to hit. Sometimes maybe it'll be five. Sometimes maybe we'll go over. We experimented with 10 with Ray Earth. And I think that was a series that could take it, but also it was still just exhausting to do. Yeah, um, especially at the end. Yeah. Um, it, like it was just a lot to even watch in two weeks and stuff. Um, but some of it was based on like, they did these large chunks and they did talk about it for like three to four hours. Uh, so I kind of knew going in that that was a definite possibility that this podcast would, would be a long one, um, with each episode. Uh, but it was also sort of based around, I had listened to a lot of podcasts where the format was one or maybe two episodes at a time and sort of breaking those down. Um, and there's a lot of good stuff that we, we don't do on this podcast that you can do there, um, where you like really get into, and especially because you're watching it slower, you like, will key in on just like funny things and episodes that maybe you don't have a lot to say about, but you just want to talk about cause it's funny. Um, we sometimes have to like pick and choose a little bit more, but we also get to talk about arcs. Um, and mm -hmm. then the other kind of podcast that I had heard was where it's like oh yeah we watched the entire series and we're going to talk about it um which also has its benefits because you just get to get right into the discussion of the thing that you really really want to talk about um but obviously loses some of that so part it's of it was much just intentional level. 
some reason. Yeah. Yeah. And so part of it was like I wanted to find something that was going to be sort of a episode by episode to a degree, but also gave us more flexibility to say, eh, I don't have a lot to say about this episode, but I have a, I do have a lot to say about this. And so the conversation might end up weighted towards, oh yeah, we talked about two of the seven episodes a lot, um, but we also got to do it in the context of what's happening broadly. So I enjoy the way that this is structured. Um, I also just know that sometimes that structure can be kind of, uh, Sometimes it's very easy to do a nice, clean structure, and other times it's going to be a little bit more shambling, and sometimes it's just what the show is, like, what show are we watching, those sorts of things, so. Yeah. Um, I think our last episode was very good. Um, I know that we, like, jumped around a lot, and we're kind of rambly, and I was very tired when we got to the end, but. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I'm satisfied with, like, the, the framing work that we did. Uh, yeah. And I think that's it's a, a lot more is unveiled in uh, in these this section of episodes because uh, yeah. now we're like well we're pretty well deep into the the plot. I will say going into these episodes, I there's little things that I want to call out, but like I feel like we've covered a lot of the the main themes of the show already. And some of that stuff has been developed and we can talk about how some of those things get developed, but there's a certain amount to which like I have a clear idea of what I think of this, which we will get to when we get to the end of all eight episodes. Mm -hmm. Um, But just spoilers for the listener. Um, There was a part towards the very end of the, this series of episodes that we watched uh, where I just texted you about how I'm going to have to talk about Teriyama shoes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and That's I, what happens. Like, literally something happened in the episode and I paused the episode and I stood up and I paced around the room being like, when, when Terry Amashuji got referenced, I was like, I'm going to be a little bit extra here and talk about him. But I, I know that this is a reference that might be harder for like people who aren't familiar with this, his work to like parse because there's just not a ton of English language stuff about him. Um, and I I know that I have had to dig to find stuff about him. So I'm going to do the work to try and explain that reference. But I also kind of feel like I'm like, it's not that relevant. I just want to do this work in this one case because I like Terry Amashuji's work. And then I got to this and it was like, no, fuck, this whole thing has been Terry Amashuji. The stuff that you've been talking about art, this is like Terry Amashuji. This <laughs> Makashima is... Is Teriyama. <laughs> oh, actually, yeah. Actually, the show is yeah. deeply engaged with like with these concepts that that it alluded yeah. to, including uh, things that I thought about mentioning, but I was like, it's not directly related to the reference, and I don't want to like fully go down that avenue because it feels like the wrong avenue to pursue. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to derail the podcast talking about this when it, maybe it's not relevant. And then I got to episode fourteen, and I was like, well, fuck, it's all relevant. I'm so affirmed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, sometimes that just happens. So yeah, and. Uh, this is like, I think my final th- thought on this before we, uh, cause we, we have to, we have to move on to the episode discussion. Ooh. Um, one of the things I really like, so I mean, full disclosure, I really like the show. I think that was evident already. <laughs> um, one of the things I really like about the show is that it is very direct, uh, in terms of engaging the viewer in what it wants to be talking about. Um, it's, it's almost kind of like, um, a philosophical work, uh, 
it, in certain ways, it reminds me kind of like a, like a dialogue of, of Plato in that it's very direct about telling you like, okay, yeah, you know, we're going to talk about virtue. Like what is question? What, what is virtue? Well, okay. <laughs> let's like start thinking about, let's start thinking through this. Um, and psychopaths, it, it offers uh, pretty explicitly like what it's concerned with. Um, yeah. And it shows uh, a lot of the like, it shows itself working through uh, a lot of these ideas. I, again, very like explicitly and in a way that um, engages the viewer and orients them into uh, like these philosophical problems and to thinking about these philosophical problems that it's raising. Yeah. And as it's doing that, it still has like a tremendous amount of depth. Um, and this is where it kind of reminds me of like, as I said, of like a, a dialogue. Um, it still has tremendous depth. If you like follow the threads that it presents um, beyond what is then like, explicitly stated in the show uh if you actually think about like the problems that it's presenting and the threads it's giving you uh more deeply you uncover uh a tremendous amount of uh additional depth <laughs> uh that uh that it's also um kind of has within it um and is uh and is asking you to to engage with um so i i really like that um and i think that it's one of the reasons why it's a great show um, and, and why it's like uh, even as it's doing these illusions um, and uh, invoking the like complex uh, concepts or like philosophical problems, it still feels very accessible um, and like, engaging or intriguing in the way that it makes you want to be like Terry Yamashuji, like what's that? What's, what's that about? Um, and yeah. then you go down the, like the rabbit hole. Uh, and as, and when you go down the rabbit hole, it's like, Oh shit. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm supposed to go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> like this is actually like the show is about this. Um, yeah. So anyway, I'm glad that you've had that experience with your, like uh, your, like, favorite uh not well maybe not favorite but you're like the theorist artist that you have an affinity for that just so happens to like pop up in psychopaths yeah <laughs> so anyway uh that's probably enough that's enough prefatory comments for me uh if you if you have more by all means no i think it. we can get into the synopses okay uh I've already forgotten who we decided would go first. I think it's me. You said you said you you would go first. I'm okay. assuming for the part where it says explain Saiga's method. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, um, I just threw that in there because I didn't want to write it all out. Uh, okay, yeah. episode nine, Fruit of Paradise. Uh, in attempting to track down Makishima, Kogami takes Akane to visit his former teacher, the psychologist Joji Saiga who agrees to give her a crash course on criminal profiling. Um, explain Saiga's method. Okay. Uh, Saiga's method appear, uh, once again, it's a profiling method. Um, 
from what we know at this point, it appears to entail uh, reading various uh, cues, uh, very, very subtle cues given off by persons like body and behavior uh, in order to uh, deduce uh, certain things about their uh, factual things about their life or uh, their psychological state uh, with a shockingly high degree of accuracy. Um, perhaps we'll learn more about uh, Saiga's method uh, as we go. Uh, when uh, Kogami and Akane return, Gino harshly reprimands Akane for pursuing such risky methods. Uh, we are told that uh, Saiga was basically banned from teaching uh, because the people who attended his courses uh, it was eventually found that there was a uh, that their hues uh, became clouded, um, or there's like a correlation between people who attended and and their hues becoming clouded afterwards. Uh, so then it was like you know his his thought was banned essentially. Um, rather than apologizing, uh, Akane pushes back uh, and uh, berates Shino, demanding his respect. And pointing out they have equal status, uh, even though he's more—he's uh, her senior. They are still both inspectors, so uh, she won't tolerate him disrespecting her. Uh, Akane, even after this, is still furious and intends to file a complaint against Gino, but Masaoka intercepts her and convinces her not to by explaining that Gino's concern over her and his, more generally all of his colleagues' uh, mental well-being is rooted in the tragic stories of his father and his former partner, Kagami, uh, both of whom eventually were forced to become enforcers when their hues deteriorated too far uh, because they got in too deep. Um, elsewhere in the episode, we see a TV interview given by uh, Toyohisa Singuji, uh, who we recognize from uh, as the killer of uh, Odio in last episode. Uh, and we learn more about him and his advocacy for cybernetics technology, with it being revealed that his entire body, except his brain, uh, has been cyberized. And later, Makishima and Senguji uh, sit with one another and discuss Senguji's perspective on his crimes uh, and share some some thoughts about uh, society and the, the civil system. Um, episode 10, Methuselah's Game. Makishima and Senguji set up a hunt uh, by kidnapping Akane's friend, Yuki Funahara, and using her as bait to lure Kogami into an abandoned subway station. So they basically know that, like, Akane is going to go, but will probably bring Kogami along, and that she's not going to be the one who goes in, Kogami will go in. But they're, like, specifically, you know, Makishima's taking an interest in Kogami. Um, I think it's important to set up that that's, like... They, they are intentionally setting this up, knowing Kogami will be the one, even though, like, that's not immediately clear by them kidnapping Akane's friend. Yeah. Um, upon entering the station, Kogami discovers uh, that there are more sections of the subway than officially recorded, and eventually discovers Tsunahara in a train car. Um, as he's freeing her, the car suddenly activates uh, and takes them both deep into the subway system. Causing Kogami to lose contact with Akane. I think even, like, before that happens, there's, like, a certain cutout, because there's some sort of... Uh, you know, technology to sort of black out the signal or whatever, but especially once they go, it's just like the Akane is going to have to figure out how to find him. Yeah. Important detail so. that the the communication yeah. is like cut and then it's replaced with like a fake 
fake Akane's yeah. voice, like encouraging him to to go deeper into the trap. Yeah. Um, and he pretty quickly, but it's not until he's on the subway system, like the subway car identifies that it was not actually her. It was like faked from her voice files or whatever. Um, anyway, uh, when the train stops, Kogami and Funehara make their way through the corridors and eventually find themselves in what we recognize as Sanguji's arena. Uh, the two of them then evade Sanguji and his canine, uh, drones, as well as a curious Makishima who's sort of observing from above, um, I, there's some stuff that we can get into here, but I'll maybe explain when we get to the end of the summary, just in mm-hmm. case some of it's touched on. Uh, meanwhile, Gino uh, scolds Tsunemori for letting Kugami go off on his own. Is basically saying like, "You let him run away." Uh, is essentially like he t- used this opportunity to escape. Um, um, while he's doing that and is like really pushing uh, Akane here, um, Masaoka like grabs him by the collar basically and reprimands him for his treatment. Of Akane, uh, and then sort of, you know, brushes it off a little bit, uh, cause obviously he probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, meanwhile, uh, Makishima rigs the hunt to give Kogami a chance to create a working transponder. And as a result, Kogami makes contact with the group outside. They go in after him. Um, the whether summary or not, ends here, but <laughs> whether, yeah. So the, I already apologized last time for I yeah. have I have augmented these summaries to a degree, um, but they're we, from we, the wiki. Yeah, you uh, have to work with the wiki. Whether uh, or I not will... Makashima rigs the hunt <laughs> is debatable. That's not clearly so. Yeah, depicted. to me, it's it is not rigging the hunt. He but there he his clearly. Uh, it seems like he is added into the hunt. Yeah, which is that it. It doesn't seem like Singuji is aware that Kogami has been. Uh, given that like things have been planted here for Kogami to get the transponder that will then let him contact the outside. Um, and there is a uh, testing thing happening here where um, I think all of this happens in this episode. I don't remember exactly when stuff goes over to the next one. Um, but that like it involves uh. So that he first finds the transponder, I think, taped to, or no, it finds it in a in a duffel bag. The f- um, it, it he finds the the radio in the duffel bag. The yeah. battery is taped to one of the dog dog drones that he has and then to the, like kill or destroy. Yeah, and then the antenna is the wire in uh, Yuki's bra, so that if he had left her behind to like have a better chance of escaping, that would have also, um, like he, he would have lost the game. Yeah. Yeah, important yeah. details here. I I knew yeah. you would come through for me, so I just I left it. I just um, left the the summary inadequate. And then I was like, "And is the summary not going to mention that Kogami kills him?" And I was like, "Oh wait, this next episode it does mm-hmm. like end on a cliffhanger." Uh, yeah, still. it ends with him like making the call, and them all being yeah. like, "Oh shit!" and rushing to his aid. And at that point, like Akane's kind of already figured out about the underground tunnels and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh. But this is the, like, Kino's been, like, kind of pushing against actually doing anything around that stuff because he just doesn't, he just thinks that uh, Kugami is, like, escaping. But once the call comes through, it's like, oh, you're proven wrong, Gino. (laughs) Once again, Gino. uh, (laughs) Poor Gino. Um, Anyway, uh, 
So that describes the segue into episode 11, yeah. uh, titled Saints Supper. Uh, with, uh, so at this point, um, the reinforcements are, are arriving, uh, with a drone delivering him a dominator. Kagami manages to outwit, uh, Senguji and kill him. Uh, although he also takes, uh, some shots in the process. So he gets hit in like the side with some of the, yeah, I think um, maybe the leg too. There's a part where he's like limping before he gets shot in the side. Yeah. Yeah. So he takes some, um, some some bits of shotgun um with kogami incapacitated by his wounds uh makashima captures yuki and leaves with her uh masaoka arrives and begins tending to kogami's injuries uh while akane then pursues makashima on her own eventually uh finding him and confronting him as he crosses on a catwalk above her uh to her shock she discovers her dominator is useless against him, uh, since it continually regist- registers him as having a crime coefficient well below criminality, uh, and eventually renders a crime coefficient of zero, uh, which um, afterwards seems to to obtain uh, as zero. So um, the next time in the in in a later episode when he gets red, it's, it's zero once again. Yeah. Uh, Makashima takes the moment to speak with Akane and challenge the civil system, uh, outlining uh, one dimension of his critique of the system. Um, perhaps there will be, perhaps there are more, uh, and uh, beginning to expound his uh, his point of view uh, to reinforce his argument, which we will certainly discuss later. Uh, he decides to test Akane by giving her the ability to kill him with Senguji's rifle. In other words, he throws the rifle down to her and says, I'm just going to stand here. Uh, go ahead and shoot me. Um, but points out that uh, this would require her to make her own judgment, unmediated and uncontrolled by Sybil, uh, over life and death. Akane struggles, uh, but in vain, and is ultimately unable to shoot him. Uh, and as a result, she's forced to watch uh, Makashima kill Yuki um, but before her eyes. Um, afterwards we see, um, kind of like the aftermath, um, with, uh, Akane being comforted by the other, uh, the enforcers, um, and the inspectors. And, uh, when, um, Kukami kind of gets like wheeled by her, uh, she, she tells him that she met Makashima and that, uh, he's immune to the dominator or, uh, to quote the episode, the Dominator cannot judge him. Yeah. Um, in terms of stuff in here, I mean, we can maybe talk a little bit about Senguchi, um, but I felt like he was the less interesting part of this episode. Uh, there's a little bit with his like ideas around like humanity finally reaching immortality, uh, and then it seemed to be like tied up into this idea of like. Um, but that still necessitates like taking of other lives or, um, you know, some sort of process in that way. Uh, but the stuff that I found more interesting was sort of some of the reveal around Makishima and this like confrontation with Ikane and, uh, Makishima. Yeah. I don't know if there's Uh, anything else you want to get into. What I would say about Toyohisa, um, Senguji, whatever, we'll be, we'll use them interchangeably. Um, 
I think it I think it's worthwhile to pause just like briefly and look at him uh, since we established last time that you know there there's a pattern um that the show I think is drawing our attention to with the the various iterations of these of these criminals and then kind of what they're um they're representing or or what their motivations are um it also uh dovetails with another observation that we made last time which is that uh the illusions oftentimes that characters make uh tend to be very illuminating um in ways that are um like explicit or or uh inexplicit um and the one that stood out to me was uh Toyohisa being the second killer to make reference to Plato. Um so now we've we've gotten Plato twice. Uh and he's using it to uh he quotes from Plato and uh quotes Plato as saying our souls are trapped in our bodies. Um and he's basically trying to argue that uh you know therefore like you know, the human body is not uh, an object of value. Um, it's something that can be replaced and should be replaced with cybernetics in order to gain immortality um, and so on. Uh, the interesting thing about this is if we assume then that Toriyasa is the kind of guy who reads Plato, um, it's very disappointing that uh, when we learn about his uh, his actual uh, well, when we learn about what he explicitly states his motivations to be, uh, it turns out that he's uh, essentially a hedonist. Yeah. Um, so you know he takes. We have this scene with Makashima where he's talking about the pleasure that he takes in um, in hunting and killing. Uh, and that he feels that it's like a kind of <clears throat> vampiric, like invigorating thing uh, where he's like stealing their life to to feed himself. Um, yeah. So we have this like consumptive uh, notion that uh, that he has. Um, and then we also see the luxuries uh, that he like surrounds himself with. Um, so he has, you know, he's like smoking the cigar um, he has the, the fine alcohol, like whiskey or whatever it is. Um, he, li- he, the conversation takes place in this very luxurious room with a rug and like luxurious furniture. Um, and then it's like, uh, his killing becomes, uh, explicitly equated with this hedonism in the like pipe, which is made of Rikako's bones. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we have this object that is like represents this um this equation. Um and the reason that this is disappointing, uh or and I I assume that Makashima is probably thinking this, uh, is that if this guy actually read Plato, uh he would come across very quickly uh that Plato's not a very big fan of hedonism. Uh <laughs> yeah. Uh <laughs> and uh argues against hedonism uh, in multiple ways, but uh, uh, most notably here uh, that hedonism essentially like enslaves you uh, to your desires. 
um, to a life of uh, like a, essentially a, a pointless life of uh, constant fulfillment of your appetites. Um, there, there's also a way that, um, and I mean, I haven't like looked up the exact part that he's quoting from here with Plato, but even when he says our souls are trapped in his bodies or like our souls, our, our souls are trapped in our bodies. Um, he has arrived at the conclusion of like trapping the soul into a new kind of body that will simply, uh, persist forever Precisely. rather than like a body that, uh, whatever you think of as death, that like some change will, will take place to that body that will like, who knows what happens to the soul after that? Perhaps you, it is just fully trapped and you like die or whatever, but he like has no, he, he's merely extending the body by choosing a new body that will is longer like you're more able to extend precisely and then the yeah. irony of, of that is further reinforced by the fact that what he does with his new body is like continually satiate bodily desires yeah <laughs> um so he has this kind of like pointless uh existence at least uh if we if we follow the the thread it, and uh, apply some of probably what what Plato would argue, um, he has this kind of pointless existence where he's trapped in in this cycle. Um, yeah, and I think then you know it makes sense that he uh, we we get we get these additional revelations when um when he's truly on the back foot and it's like. It become, it's becoming clearer that Kogami is like outwitting him and that he's actually that he's in danger and Makashima points it out to him um and then and then he begins to reveal that um really what his desire is is to uh either experience death uh or or just die um and then when he's shot we get this scene of him like gleefully <laughs> awaiting the the dominators projectile it's actually like the point of view of the projectile going into his uh his face as he's like smiling gleefully um so uh i i think all of this hangs together um yeah where torihisa is seen um we kind of get this like explication of uh of his psychology here um and and then we see how it's not he he's kind of trapped in this um in this philosophical prison that he's created for himself um and uh in in a similar fashion to um to these like thematic deaths uh that we get with the other the other killers yeah um, so that's what I'll say for, for Toyohisa. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and with that, um, in, unless you have something you, you want to add there, um, I'm well, and that, I guess also that, um, like to tie it more to, to Makashima, who's increasingly becoming like the guy I want to talk about, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, cause we're, we're just actually getting more about him. He's now. just, he's just that type um, of guy. Yeah, he's just he has a certain charisma, you might say. Uh there's this certain quality where he has the nature of a hero or prophet. Uh and I just feel good when I see him on the screen and he speaks so eloquently about all sorts of things. He's also really good at martial arts, which yeah. is not one of the four one of the three criteria, but 
I petition I mean, that there should be four. I think I think being good at really good at martial arts is part of the ability to make you feel good when you're around them. Because oh, any time that I see someone performing martial arts, I feel good. <laughs> that's I true. like watching people do martial arts. It's a subcategory. I'll put that yeah. in here. Martial arts. Um That's our subcategory. Anyway. Um but spe- specifically like his testing of uh, Singuji of uh, Toyohisa is this like um, you know it it seems like in fact that normally the game has been rigged for him the way that he does this like hunt is very specifically like the hunter who who goes out and uh, doesn't really have the risk it's like the the trophy hunter kind of thing yeah um where it's purely about just like taking life from other things and, and what the testing is that um, there's sort of a dual testing that's happening with Makishima here to the, you know, both uh, Singuji and Kogami, uh, but is like to put it into a situation where this is not just like a, a hunter going out and getting his trophy kills. This is like an actual uh, brush with death at the very least, or, you know, it turns out to be, actual death but um yeah yeah and so it is specifically like around that like this whole thing around the the proximity of to death is what makes like an appreciation of life is something that like makashima is uh introducing into the scenario yeah as perhaps a director might yes perhaps <laughs> <laughs> a director um, who seeks to bring together actors and spectators yeah, and and true to form, like as <laughs> Makashima frames his testing as um, in, in this episode. Actually, um, I don't know if I have the exact quotation here, but uh, um, he basically says, uh, "You know, in like in the face of death or whatever, uh, a person's soul is tested, and that's when you uh, figure out." That's when yeah. who, who they really are emerges. When a man faces fear, his soul is tested. He was born to seek what he uh, what he was born to seek, what he was born to achieve. His true nature will become clear. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and uh, sure enough, um, this is this is proven true uh, in, in Singuji's case, uh, where the kind of um, this like mask of uh, satisfied uh, confident hedonism is like his pulled away. Um, and we see this guy, uh, either like revealing a deeper hedonism whereby, uh, he's the greatest, like, uh, sensory pleasure, uh, is this like more acute, uh, sensory, uh, like visceral awareness of life. Uh, that he's seeking um, or this kind of um, this kind of like deep despair, uh, unacknowledged despair (laughs) Uh, uh, where he feels that death is, um, is a a release um, in, in some way that's not uh, that he can't articulate uh, to himself. Uh, so anyway, 
Um, maybe that's a good segue for uh, moving on to to discuss Makishima. Um, yeah, since... and and this the the moment of testing of Akane. Yeah. Because I, I want to get more into Makishima as director when we get to 14 through 16. But <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Um, well, uh, so we, ha- we have this scene with Makishima and Akane. Um, this is one of the uh, really obviously one of the key scenes in this show. Um, so I think we can spend some time uh, on this, uh, especially since... Um, Maybe first of all, we can say the the reveal. Uh, we we learn that Makashima uh, cannot be judged by the Dominators, and there's a couple ways that we can potentially interpret this now. Yeah. Um. And we we will learn more. Um. So, uh, whatever interpretation. We'll have more revealed later, to uh, so that discussion will be ongoing. Uh, yeah. But yeah, first of all, there's a couple ways we could interpret that. Well, before we we like really dive into that specific thing, um, I also want to just highlight, which is a thing that I'm sure lots of people have thought of, but I want to just bring it into uh, part of what this is raising, in case people haven't thought of it, or um, you know, I think it's also just in the background of all of this, which is that we learn that there, you know, and we'll get more detail on this. In these episodes, we learn that there's this like uh, thing called criminally asymptomatic syndrome where uh, people are committing crimes and still have no crime coefficient. And, you know, no matter what his as he says, his uh, hue remains pure white, um, you know, no matter what sort of happens to him mentally. Uh, the, the pure existence of this uh, invites the question of does the opposite exist? Especially when you think of someone like uh, Kagari, who up until this point, uh, more so than any other of the the um, enforcers that we've met, just seems like a nice kid. <laughs> yeah, you know, there there so far within the show, there is nothing about uh, Kagari other than like maybe he you could read him as having like spiky dyed hair. <laughs> In like a slightly like uh, delinquenty crow highway, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, and he has like a slightly uh, like playful delinquenty demeanor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there's like nothing that seems like um, he he seems like genuinely happy most of the time. Uh, I mean, we will learn that he's like upset at the civil system for for clear reasons about how it's <laughs> him. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Uh, that also like seemingly that is a byproduct of being labeled like the existence of Makishima being someone who no matter what happens he has like this uh great you know his psychopath is fine his hue is great he you know doesn't have a crime coefficient invites the question of is Kagari or at least other people are there people out there who get labeled as high crime coefficient who don't it does it fail in the other direction too um that is like, in fact, don't have criminal intent or whatever is purportedly being controlled by the system. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that's the first thing I just want to highlight in case people haven't thought about it, that like in and of itself, the existence of this 
raises the question of whether the opposite exists. And if that does, then that throws questions into the justice of a system where this thing reads that someone is a criminal and so you shoot them into question in and of itself. So, very good point. Problem. Yeah. That's problem number one. We're going to have a lot. Yeah, we have a lot of problems. Wakashima <laughs> <laughs> uh, very kindly uh, throws down basically throws down the gauntlet here uh, in his presence and also like in his dialogue. Um, and, and this is a, uh, a moment where like the show is now presenting a, a, a number of uh, philosophical problems uh, to consider for the, the civil system. Um, I think a lot of these problems have been hinted at or like, uh, you know, already introduced uh, but are especially brought into the light now. Um, and of course, will continue to, to stay with us. Um, so, uh, yes, in addition to your point, um, we also have uh, the existence, the fact that the dominator, uh, and by extension, the civil system, uh, cannot judge uh, or cannot read uh, Makashima. Um, and then... Uh, so I guess I'll just start. Uh, I'll just start with that. Um, I'm going to immediately enter into uh, the realm of, of my opinion here. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I feel I have good reasons for, uh, for going down this road. Uh, this is one thing I want to introduce uh, at, like, at this juncture so we can think about it for a while. Um. One of the concepts that, uh, for me, has been very uh, that is key to my understanding of this show uh, is this idea of recognition, um, and specifically, like in my mind, um, it's this like it's this Hegelian idea of intersubjective recognition. Um, I've been very. Uh, hesitant to like introduce this uh and anxious about uh about getting to this moment yeah uh, because hegel is obviously extremely extremely complex um and very systematic like in his thought um to to the like to the degree that it's it's very hard to just punch out a concept um and then use it uh you know, in, in isolation from, um, you know, from this larger like system of thought he has. Um, and then I'm also not capable uh, of, well, at least I'm not capable of doing it well, um, nor do we have the time or inclination to uh, establish <laughs> all of the steps uh, in, you know, Hegel's uh, philosophy relevant to this and, and the whole, all of the layers of argumentation. Um, so those are my disclaimers. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to do an extensive uh, analysis of Hegel. I'm, I'm going to, to do this partial, I'm going to bring it in this partial way. Um, but the reason I'm doing this in spite of all of those disclaimers, which uh, make it seem like a bad idea uh, is because I truly am convinced that 
uh, Hegel is the right uh, theorist uh, to, to bring in for this show, um, or a, a right theorist. Um, and I think his thought uh, is extremely illuminating for uh, all of these, for this problem of recognition specifically that I see as tying into ev- everything else. Um, and then also just for like what, what the show is doing in, in a lot of areas. Um, so, uh, let it be said that, you know, if, uh, my main goal in this is establishing, Hey, Hegel is related. Um, here's my attempt at, at, uh, coming up with why, <laughs> uh, or starting to explain why it's relevant. Um, so for Hegel, essentially, um, part of the process of constituting subjecthood is intersubjective recognition. Um, so having two subjects that are, are mutually uh, recognizing um, and, and engaging in this, like, and th- this is one step in, in a process, um, uh, but this is a, a requirement in order to reach the type of subjecthood that then uh, enables such things as freedom uh, and and willing action. Um, and to take it a step further, um, Hegel is generally seeing uh, all aspects of um, human life. So things like such as will and rights um, as things that are only realized through uh through through contextual uh relations um so through environments systems that you're part of um so necessarily through others or through other entities um and uh i think in the world of psychopaths we have a problem with this uh where uh the civil system uh is quantifying people. Um, so we have a, a totalitarian state um, that is concerning itself with subjecthood explicitly uh, and defining subjecthood uh, explicitly as a quantified value. Um, and then uh, that quantified value, uh, this kind of distorted uh, uh, or reduced uh, subjecthood uh, is then conditioning uh, or mediating all of the subject's relations <laughs> with everybody, uh, everyone else, and with society as a whole. Uh, Makashima is the moment where uh, he becomes kind of like the linchpin of this problem. Um, because, at least on my interpretation, um, Makashima being unable to be read by the civil system uh, means that the, the system itself, uh, it's a, it's a uh, literalized example of non-recognition uh, whereby uh, the system uh, truly does not recognize uh, him at all. Um, and so in this way, he's erased. Um, if it's not too uh, like abstract, uh, to make this argument, I think there's a way that in this in this society, Makashima does not exist. Um, 
for the purposes of this <clears throat> totalitarian regime uh, that is, again, exerting this kind of uh, oh, strongly determining or overdetermining uh, force on, on subjecthood, um, Makashima doesn't exist uh, or isn't recognized. Um, and so this erasure is uh, a, a profound... Uh, I don't know if crime is the right word <laughs> because crime is such a loaded term um, yeah. in conjunction with all of these things. Um, but this erasure is a profound um, uh, event, uh, a defining event uh, for Makashima. Um, so in a way it's, it's a severe deprivation. Um, and, and perhaps, I, I'm also going to suggest instead of a, a crime, an injustice, which I'm bringing in as like a justice having different things than crime in and of itself or different connotations. Precisely. Um, so this injustice or this severe deprivation uh, is definitive uh, uh, of Makashima's, uh, it, it's this kind of... Uh, imposition on his subjecthood and, and is definitive in, in these ways that a number of ways that, that need to be unpacked. Um, but then conversely, um, or the other side of the coin in the same way, uh, because he's erased and because he, he quote unquote, doesn't exist. Uh, he also has this freedom, um, that makes him the enemy <laughs> of the system, uh, because he can do these acts uh, outside of the purview of the system, he can uh, get away, uh, not be detected. Um, in short, doing everything that we have, we're watching him doing. Um, but I think these two things are the same. Um, the the freedom that he that he's gaining, uh, this like kind of, and again, freedom should probably be in quotation marks given the whole chain of analysis yeah. up to this point. Um, the, the freedom that he's gaining, uh, or you could see it as uh, a lack of freedom in that, uh, there's an argument to, to be made that this is the only thing, this is what he must do. Um, and, uh, so, um, I'll, I'll lay that all out there. Um, Go, I will go say ahead. That, <clears throat> that there are ways that I want to respond that specifically get into Terry Yamashuji, <laughs> but I still want to get to what happens in 14 through 16 and also talk about stuff with the civil system before I like really start unpacking all of that stuff. Sure. Um, we'll put a pin I, in that. I put, yeah, I'm putting a pin in this. Um, but that I, I guess the thing I will say now and I'll get into it more later, but just the small taste that I'll give people is that I think also the inherent issue that is happening here um, when you're talking about this, like, subjectivity and um, I'm drawing a blank on the the uh, additional part. Oh, like intersubjective Yeah, the, <coughs> the intersubjective recognition um, is a specific breakdown of the 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 space between the thing that that like perceives people and judges them and then the ability of the person to perceive the thing yes um 
that that is like the the fundamental breakdown that is happening with Makishima. Um, and so within that, it there's less a the the language that I'm reaching for is less about like uh, him having or lacking freedom, but rather about a certain one I think about like a certain class dynamics, but also of a a breakdown of like uh, interrecognition and uh, community. Um, yes. but I'll get into some of that stuff more later. <laughs> Good. Uh, so that's problem number two. <laughs> um, and then problem number three, we get explicated, uh, in, in Makashima's dialogue, um, which I will, I will read, um, some, some selections here. I, Makashima says, I think the only time people really have value is when they act according to their own will. So uh, keywords there. Uh, yeah. So I've asked many people about their true repressed desires and observe their actions all this time. Uh, going on, uh, by analyzing a bioorganism's force field read by a cymatic scan, they, simple system, figure out how a person's mind works. Science has finally discovered the secret between the human soul. And by the way, I'm, I'm editorializing. I think he's using the word soul ironically here. Um but uh, people's wills are not part of that assessment. I wonder just what sort of criteria you use to divide people into good and evil. Uh, so one problem that I, I see arising from this is um, kind of following Makashima's argumentation. Um, we have one immediate proof, uh, his assertion that the, the will is erased uh, in this uh, by the civil system in, in this uh, regime. Well, you get one proof of this immediately, which is, um, let's say that, let's presuppose that society has a right to punish or imprison people that don't abide by its laws. Um, now, that, that actually do criminal actions. Now, if that society can somehow identify those who are predisposed to break the laws before they do it, before they break them, is punishing or incarcerating those people the same thing? Uh, and I think the answer is no, um, because in the second proposition, uh, the ingredient that's missing is the person's will <laughs> to action um, because they haven't actually taken action. Um, and they're like, uh, so you've, you've removed, uh, any notion of, of will, uh, from the equation. Um, so here is the, the, like an immediate proof, uh, of what Makashima is saying in this like minority report type arrangement, um, punishing incarcerating people, what have you, um, before they commit their crimes is a model that. Uh, is a model of like punishment or um, policing uh, that erases will. Um, so I, I think uh, this is something that we uh, will need to keep in mind as well <laughs> uh, as a, another, that this, as the third problem uh, presented here. Um, and then uh, I guess problem number four uh, which Makashima also makes, or the point that he also makes, uh, 
um, uh, if the definition, um, so again, if, uh, if you're creating this definition of crime, um, which is based on this constructed mechanical measurement, um, that is disregarding will in that it's, uh, it's just measuring, um, you know, physio physiology, um, or state of mind, um, prior to action, um, and then punishing based on that measurement. Um, so if the definition of criminality is, is coming, uh, is, is being applied in this way, um, and doesn't, uh, account for any notion of will, uh, then how can you even begin to make uh, moral classifications such as good and evil, um, which uh, would appear to be contingent on, uh, at least for the uh, actions of the individual subject, um, w would seem to require at least some consideration of, <laughs> of the idea of will uh, that is summarily like, dismissed. Um, so anyway, um, I think I don't want us to get, uh, I don't want to get bogged down in explicating everything that spins out from all of the, what we've said. Yeah. Uh, but suffice it to say all of that is, is going on. Um, and, and we, we get becomes staged for the first time here. Yeah. Um, do we move on to the next two episodes? Uh, yes. Um, and then, well, I guess I'll also say, you know, Akane, uh, maybe one more proof of Makashima's argument, um, is the fact that Akane, um, someone who is, is subject to the system, um, and, uh, in, in the ways that, uh, in the different ways that, that she is, that she's actually subject to the system, uh, unlike Makashima. Um, and therefore, uh, you know, in certain ways, uh, has her thought, um, and her moral capabilities, uh, determined or conditioned by that. Um, when he challenges her to, uh, to do something quote unquote by her own free will, um, which she certainly wants to do, <laughs> um, to, to save her friend. Uh, she still can't do it. Um, you know, as this agent of the system, she can't exercise her will either. And, um, and some of, just to frame how some of this plays out to you is like, uh, I want to emphasize how much she is like shaking. And so there's also this question of, is it her, quote unquote cymatic response like her uh anxiety in this moment and everything that is like preventing her from being able to actually take aim when she pulls the trigger because she does pull the trigger uh but she does she's not able to take aim um, she's like she closes her eyes when she when she pulls yes it. so she can't um, like look and look at him and aim it but then how how much is that also tied to a thing and we're we're going to see her essentially tested in this scenario again later um 
where she's still going to make a choice not to kill him and instead do the thing that the civil system wants, which is, uh, you know, first it is the using the the dominator to take care of criminals or whatever. And then once there's specific uh, orders beyond that, it is just arrest him, which we'll get later. But like, there is still a certain amount to which like in the testing, she to this point is not, despite the fact that there have been multiple moments where she's begun to question the civil system. It also seems like she's not, maybe not fully ready to break from it in this way. Yeah. And and, and I like think... both of the both of those remain hanging questions, especially in this episode of how much of is it in the testing she she is still committing to the civil system is correct, or is it that like she she is not able to have that confidence or have that ability to like keep her eyes open, steady her hand to take the shot. Yeah, and or if the weight of the decision, uh, the weight of the choice unmediated by <clears throat> or yeah. uncontrolled by the civil system is, is what takes away that confidence. Yeah. It's like, it's is beyond her capability Yeah, uh, in the moment because of like, <laughs> uh, the fact that, uh, this control of the civil system and its conditioning and, and, um, because of the, the imposition that, that it represents and what it what it does to, to uh subjects under it. Um so but you you're right to uh anticipate the uh the moment in the in the radio tower because I, I agree that's a par a parallel. Yeah. Um, um but let's progress further towards that moment. <laughs> Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do two episodes where we'll have a little bit to talk about, but I think this will probably be our shortest section here. Uh, there is some interesting stuff here, uh, and I want to start out by saying uh, episode twelve. I can't believe I didn't say this on the podcast because I thought I would just be a comedy person saying this, but Yoy immediately when I saw her gave me vibes of being both gay and liking guitars, and I can't believe I was correct. <laughs> I can believe it. <laughs> Uh, I just called it. I I knew, especially when it was like, she's into the passionate stuff. I was like, oh yeah, she's gay and she likes rock music. <laughs> I just know this in my soul. So anyway, episode 12, Devil's Cross Road. Uh, we jumped back, you know, cliffhanger last time. We jumped back three years ago. Um, Yigoi, a former guitarist, uh, has been institutionalized after she's labeled a latent criminal. Uh, we actually start on the flashback here, which is prior to her institutionalization, um, where we see her romantic relationship with a woman named Rina Takizaki, uh, who's the lead vocalist of another band. Um, I don't know if they're going to go into the details here, but I guess I'll say it up front right here. This is mostly is that, my synopsis, by the way. Yeah. Uh, okay. The, the wiki might didn't talk this, at but, all about this relationship. But uh, Yoyoi's band, oh yeah, you have a year. Although Yoyoi's band is approved by Sybil, it's like an uh, authorized band. Rena's is not. Um, and when Yoyoi decides to sort of stick around and pursue this relationship with Rena, um, her bandmates are sort of warning and like upset about it. Uh, and this seems to be somehow related to her institutionalization. Um, back in her cell. Yoyoi uh, anxiously awaits release. Um, and also we get this thing of like, she's ordered guitar strings multiple times and they keep getting denied. Um, 
And uh, while she's awaiting release, she's approached by Kagami, who's still an inspector, um, and Gino. And they're talking about there's this series of crimes that were taking place in basically the the same music district where she used to play music and hang out. Uh, and so they're like, you know, we want you basically saying we want you to join us as um, an enforcer and help out with this. And Sybil says you you have the aptitude for it. Yes. And that you should do it. Um, and so she rejects it. Uh, she doesn't want to do it. And then Kogami's like, basically, if you get out of here, you can just go buy guitar strings and like holds up the guitar strings that she's been asking for over and over again. Seeing this, we get another flashback to some of her memories, including like touching hands with Rena. Um, cause there's a certain, like she reaches out to touch through the glass where the guitar strings are, um, or on the gra- glass again, I guess. But, uh, and so, um, I think we also find some stuff in here that like, even though they say eventually you'll get out, like most people never get out of the institution. Um, that's yeah. That's revealed a little bit later, but yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so sh- she decides to like basically go along and assist, but it hasn't like f- the vibe is that she hasn't fully committed to being an enforcer yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's going to like help out with this case at least. Um, I'll just go and see what it's about. Yeah. Uh, and so they go, uh, another enforcer who I think might be Kogami's enforcer is, is Sasayama the one who died or is this just yeah. a different guy? No, it's Sasayama. Okay. Sasayama yeah. of, uh, human statue fame yeah. is, is appears. <laughs> uh, and let me tell you, Sasayama, uh, he's a real cannon. Uh, you gotta <laughs> reel that guy in. It's a loose yeah, cannon. Yeah, um and so he goes into the venue and just like immediately starts shit that that causes like a Molotov cocktail to get thrown which is part of what they're like trying to investigate it seems like uh is like Molotov cocktails and stuff um but basically the the raid is just like uh immediately intense um Kugami did give Yoyoi a dominator and uh yeah all hell breaks loose the club's set on fire people are fleeing in the chaos um and uh Kunizuka, Yoyoi, yeah, Yoyoi. Uh, she decides to to search for Rena Takizaki. Um, you know her her former whatever the relation. We don't like see them like dating necessarily, but that's the vibe is that they were dating. Yeah. Um, at the very least, they had uh, something going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she. She goes to try and search for her, only to discover that she's part of the resistance group that has been uh, sort of selling these explosives. And uh, she specific the Rena specifically talks about like we need to overthrow the civil system. Um, also says some stuff about art. Maybe we'll get into. Yeah, <laughs> um, but also I realized when like speaking to Yoyoi, I realized when you were put away, like political yeah. radicalism was the only option. Yeah. Um, and uh, Kunizuka tries to stop. Uh, Yuyoi tries to stop her. Sorry, um, I just switched the names and bit. <laughs> yeah, bit synopsis. No, um, but then finds that she is unable to use the Dominator that Kogami gave her. She's not an enforcer yet. It says like you're not an authorized user. Um, and so Rena escapes. And uh. Yuna's basically like, oh, okay, I will become an enforcer, uh, leave the rehabilitation center. This is how she joins the crew. Um, and I'm glad that we got an episode explaining her backstory, uh, cause I just like her as a character. Yeah. Just she's from great. vibes alone. So I'm, I'm happy that vibes alone were correct for me. 
Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting episode as well. Yeah. Um, episode thirteen, invitation from the abyss. Uh, Gino meets up with the head of the public safety bureau, Joshu Kase, to debrief Akane's report. I don't trust this bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Before the end of the episode sixteen, or from the start? From the start. Yeah, yeah. She has a. The villainous demeanor. Uh, yeah. The Rubik's Cube shit is just like, oh, okay. That's a red flag. Yeah. When she's like solving the Rubik's Cube. I don't know. Um, <laughs> just don't trust people who can solve Rubik's Cubes. Not like just casually in their office f- for no reason at all. Did um, you know that I can solve Rubik's Cubes and sometimes do you just casually do it while I'm thinking? <laughs> Um, I didn't know that. We would have to reconsider a lot of things. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Joshu Kase, uh, who apparently is more similar to you than I thought, um, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, is, is hearing uh, the hot milf, uh, excuse <laughs> it's all adding up. Yeah. Cyborg, cyborg body, you know? Yeah. Just like, look, I would, if I could thin layer of skin, but it's all it's all metal. Um so uh yeah, Joshu Kase uh is hearing uh Gino's report of Yuki's death and Makashima's existence. Uh Kase reveals to Gino that the culprit of the specimen case, Kozaburo Toma, uh aka the guy that we know uh from turning Sasayama into a statue, uh was in fact apprehended and did not just go missing, as we've been told. Uh, uh, hitherto. Uh, and moreover, that Kozaburo Toma was another criminally asymptomatic person, uh, just like Makashima. Uh, she urges him, uh, Gino that is, to keep doubts away from the public eye. Um, so, for obvious reasons, don't, re- don't reveal that criminally asymptomatic people exist, uh, because it presents all sorts of problems of the kind that we have just been discussing. Uh, and we would really prefer that the public didn't start thinking about those things. Um, and uh, and then orders uh, Gino to capture but not kill Makashima. Uh, they need to interrogate him, after all. Uh, following Yuki's funeral, uh, Akane agrees to undergo a memory scoop to provide a photo fit of Makashima based on her memories of the incident despite warnings from others that it may damage her psychopaths. Um, this is like presented as a very risky uh, operation. Uh, and uh, everyone tries to stop her, but she goes forward. Uh, and despite reliving the traumatizing memory uh, in the, the memory machine, uh, the memory scoop is successfully completed without Akande's psychopaths reaching dangerous levels. Uh, she seems to recover like right away. Uh, and as a result, we uh, the team gets a photo fit image of Makashima to aid in the investigation. Uh, subsequently, uh, in contrast, we see Gino speaking with his therapist about an alarming deterioration in his hue. Uh, the therapist suggests that he speak with his father, uh, who is his only living family member. And later, for some reason, G- Gino start- talks to Masaoka. Uh, oh, wait. Masaoka is his father. Uh, we find this out. Um, 
about how, uh, and they discuss uh, Akane uh, and how mainly Masaoka's theories about how she manages to keep her psychopaths from becoming clouded. Did you see that twist coming with Masaoka being um, Gino's father? No, that I did not see that one. I didn't either. First time I yeah. watched. Um, once it once it happened, I was like, "Oh, okay, that makes sense." But you know, it it's it's well done. Like they, yeah. uh, when you rewatch it, you can see how it makes sense. Um, you can see it being like present in their actions. Um, but. Uh, yeah, it's not at all obvious. Um, yeah. Um, I'll also say we, in that conversation, we get a little bit, bit of backstory about like when the civil system first started, um, there was like this idea that, uh, if somebody, if like one person had a criminal coefficient or like cloudy here or whatever, that it would be like entirely hereditary. Um, and so some of, you know, being, uh, capital T, capital T, like, or capital L, capital T, like that, um, <laughs> was him, like, facing prejudice, uh, because his dad, um, you know, was marked as, like, having, being a latent criminal or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, uh, we also get a little bit about, like, Masaoka's loss of faith in like what being a cop means uh with the civil system yeah that the advent of the civil system like itself was the yeah. the catalyst for his uh psychopath becoming cloudy or his uh yeah. his he becoming cloudy and his crime coefficient going up um so what can we say about episode 12 um probably a few different things. Uh I think the uh one big reveal that seems important is the truth about rehabilitation of latent criminals. Uh where it's basically revealed Well, I'll just I'll just quote. Uh now this is Kogami talking to Yoyoi in the on the way to the raid. Once you've lived a uh, certain way for a while, you get used to it. People don't often return to society from those rehabilitation facilities in a normal state of mind. In fact, almost nobody does. People grow accustomed to living in a place where everything is taken from them, and then it swallows them up. Uh, so here we learn that the civil system does not actually rehabilitate latent criminals, um, which seems to not... Um, it's, it clearly purports otherwise, um, but this is a kind of disturbing truth that, that is revealed here. Um, and what I would say immediately is uh, that this ties back into um, not only just our discussion of Makashima and, rec- and the idea of recognition, um, but also the dilemma that we were talking about more last time with... Um, the like determining nature of the label of latent criminal um, and then the effect that that has on like freedom or agency um, for those labeled as such. Um, And I think here we get important information that uh, 
in fact, it does appear to be rather determining <laughs> um, that uh, those who are labeled as latent criminals never, uh, almost never, uh, seemingly never, uh, can shake it, um, can can move back into the category of uh, healthy or uh, normal, um, and then, of course, never regain, <laughs> regain their freedom either. Um, so, uh, probably don't need to like, you know, explicate that too much given, uh, I think that the connection is, uh, self-explanatory, um, from that, from that point. Yeah. Um, I know a key thing for me in this too is, uh, some of the stuff that gets revealed about art here. Um, you have this quote here. I hear that there are many cases of people's hues becoming cloudy when they are deeply involved in their art. Um, but also like the, the whole reveal of uh, approved artists and unapproved artists, um, mm-hmm. the, the stuff around there, the idea that there is uh, art that is considered safe. And then this other art um, that has not gone through that approval process or whatever. And is like, uh, deemed in some way dangerous. Um, and I think you correct me if I'm wrong. Cause, uh, I didn't take a ton of note. Like you, part of you doing the synopses means that I'm just like sitting and watching the show and I'm not even really writing down that many notes anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just trying to like actually just sit and take it in. Um, but I think even when it goes to the point of, uh, her doing like political action in terms of like the Molotov cocktails and stuff. Um, I think even in that final, is it in that final convo with Rena in uh, Yoyo where, where Rena is like still saying that, that she also wants to create art because she can like move other people to this action by like performing art. I believe by by playing music. I think, I I think even as she is doing like uh, more, you know, radical political action. She's still also affirming. It's not like I was doing this art and now I've moved into radicalization, which means that I'm not playing music anymore. I am like turning into a terrorist or, you know, heavy scare quotes on terrorist here, but like terrorist in the eyes of society. Uh, That she still has this like connection between those acts and the art. That's exactly Um, her argument. And that like, yeah, being on the stage allows her to further that radicalization in others. Yep. (laughs) That's her exact argument. You remembered it perfectly. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I remembered that it happened, but I was like, I I can't remember if it was like at the end there, if it was something earlier on. And I I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't like misremembering because also this is tying into other thoughts I have, but um, (laughs) I don't know if you have other things about this, but like, that was one of the key things is, uh, the specific way that this episode is framing art and political action and their like interrelation and the, like the value of art beyond just the, the political action or the like, um, you know, like that in and of itself that like art enables something else as well. Because this is going to get into other stuff that I talk about when we when we finally talk about all the episodes. Yeah, and I know I know you're going to have a whole thing on on uh, Terry Yamashuchi that's going <laughs> yeah. to like really get into this. So I don't know um, if you read any of my notes, but <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, okay, intentionally, 
because uh, I, yeah. I want to just uh, I want to just respond to it in the moment. You want, yeah, you want to have it out. <laughs> I want to have the excitement of uh, I want to feel a life coursing through my veins when I hear it for the first time. Um, yeah, I think uh, I won't say much um, other than uh, you know, again, last time we presented that art is important in the show. Um, you'll talk more about, uh, how you see that working later. Um, but yeah, I think art as, um, one thing I would say is, you know, perhaps there's a conception of art here as, um, not that it is, uh, serving like an indoctrinating function of like, here's my song about throw the Molotov cocktail. Um, but that art presents, uh, I'll just use, I'll use quotes because, you know, again, this is, there's a lot contained within this, um, but that yeah. art presents reality, um, in, uh, such a way to make people, uh, conscious of, of that reality in a specific fashion. Um, uh, or, or certain things about that reality that um, maybe uh, are, are they're not conscious of, uh, or a consciousness that's not promoted by, um, you know, things such as the state or, or yeah. what have you. Um, um, daily life. Me, me going into the bullshit that I'm going to want to talk about in a little bit. <clears throat> one might also say that art creates. Uh, through an encounter, a relationship, which involves a breakdown of a class relationship where you connect with another person and it creates something that is mutual and communal. And, and then, then through that, that lead you to can, action. And through that, you can lead into action, group consciousness that becomes organized. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. I see. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's where I, that's where I thought this was headed. Uh, okay. That's where I think that that's where I, I thought the show is directing yeah. us. So um, yeah, uh, we're good there. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it's important that we get political radicalism specifically introduced here as something that's persecuted. Um, yeah. Instead of just like criminality, you know, writ large. Um, that political radicalism is given a voice and is introduced as an entity. Um, so uh, that's uh, important. Um, we have Yayori, um, her decision to become an enforcer. Um, we could talk about this. Uh, I yeah, think and well, and it's, it's that decision also being a turning away from, you know, we, we get it symbolically as the nail polish and the guitar strings. Leaving it behind. But that is the the leaving behind of both, like, the the art as well as the nail polish in particular pointing towards uh, this perhaps more deviant form of relationship. Um, you know, so far in the show, this is the only character who we have seen with, like, explicit homosexual inclinations, at least. Yeah. Right? Um, we, I don't know what homosexuality gets rated as 
in the civil system. Uh, from what we've seen so far, I'm not sure if it's good or maybe maybe it's fine with like the the uh, white picket gaze. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I could see that, but um, you know, the nail polish. I think beyond the the guitar strings is like more of the art and creative part of it. The nail polish is specifically pointing towards and this like uh homosexual or homo romantic relationship. Yeah. That is also the thing that has to be turned away from. And um, and the one thing that that makes me think of as well is um this re- you use the the word deviant there and I think yeah. um that's like a, a productive uh <laughs> it's a productive term um because there's also a part of the reason why this relationship is quote unquote deviant uh, between Rina and Yayoi is that, uh, you know, Rina is in this unauthorized band and Yayoi is authorized. Um, yeah. And there was a real problem with uh, human connection um, with humans, like having relationships and connections across certain lines in uh across certain categories in this system uh um, yeah which has been uh shown uh primarily in the context of this uh detective criminal relationship um where like the people who do detective work that in and of it, that inherently involves a form of close connection, deep, deep connection with criminals. Um, and that's like a psychological connection in the sense that like to, uh, you know, we see Kagami doing these investigations. He's inhabiting the mind of, uh, of these criminals. Um, and like that closeness is a contaminating within the context of this Sybil is like a contaminating, uh, 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 influence, right. That makes them more like the criminals in this way that is, uh, unacceptable. Um, and so I think we have this, that's also like involved here where it's like, Oh no, this, this type of connection, um, such as between Yoyoi and, and Rina, um, aside from the like sexual dimension um, is, you know, it's, it's crossing these categories in this way that like we see time and again is problematic. Um, so uh, yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, then her decision, like Kagari will make comments later um, in the final episode that echo this. Um but her like abandonment of the guitar strings and the nail polish and then her just like joining the system and taking on this role as the enforcer. Um, there's a resignation in this uh, yeah. that I think is like tragic. Um, and uh, like we talked about in IBO, um, we kind of see like the victims of the system um, being co-opted into uh reproducing it um so yeah 
Yeah. Uh, not, since you briefly mentioned IBO, we won't go into this because I know there are people listening to this podcast who have not watched IBO, so they're watching along with GTP, um, including M, uh, who's on Great Gundam Project. Uh, but I, I will say, um, I've been reading through Wretched of the Earth um, because I know that it gets quoted in the movie. Um, and so I've, I've been sort of working my through that way through that. Um, so far I haven't found like a, a moment where it feels like it's right to bring it up. Maybe when I get to the movie that it'll feel like a time where it's right to bring it up. Mm-hmm. However, I am reading it and being like, well, I should have read this when we were doing IBO. <laughs> yeah. Um, was right. about, yeah. We talked about a lot of the things, um, already in like our discussion. Uh, but I think it would have been, uh, Reading it now, I'm like, if if there was a season to quote it, it was IBO. <laughs> yeah, we, we may uh, have had like, you know, a more concrete reference point and some some yeah. other language for, yeah, for what we were trying to describe. Um, um it's funny because I'm actually I'm planning to read that as well uh, because it was brought to our attention that uh, by Joao, who we slated by not um, reading it during IBO, uh, it was brought to our attention by Joao that. It's coming back, so um, I'm I'm also planning to um, to read through some fanon, um, and yeah, I uh, I'm not going to spoil anything, but um, from what I remember of fanon and what I've done so far, uh, I think that I think it's going to. F- be in close conjunction with some of the things that uh, some of the issues with recognition um, that, that have been raised, but yeah. uh, In addition to a number of other things, I'm sure, but I guess we'll see. Um, About episode 13. um, So one thing I, I I want to emphasize, you have the quote here, which is nice because then I can just read it. Um, I didn't bring this up when we were talking about episode 11, but in the moment of watching episode 11, uh, the criminally in- asymptomatic syndrome was slightly deflating for me because uh, in sh- there was a part of me where I wanted to think about the problems of the, the system when the system is perfect. And there's interesting things that get brought in, but I, I was afraid of the all too easy uh, this gets introduced and the issue is the failure of the system to simply read this person's, you know, if only we can modify the civil system to correctly read his actions as criminal, then we would have the perfectly functioning system and it would be fine again. Yeah, we just not a thing a f- that I, we need a firmware update. Yeah, which is not a thing that I uh, agree with, but I was kind of interested in, um, you know. And you were right to raise. Yeah, I, 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 I didn't want the whole thing to come down to something that could then get, even if it's not necessarily what the show is saying or what I would take away from it could easily get explained as, um, the system is just imperfect. And if we make it perfect, then things will be fine here. Um, cause there's still other issues that we're getting into. So I was happy that in episode 13, a thing that I'd already thought about and that I was going to bring up on the podcast, but the, the show did it for me and I was happy. Um, <laughs> is this thing about, I told you it was, it wasn't, yeah. <laughs> it was coming back. It wasn't going to go away. If the system is perfect, it wouldn't require humans to operate it. No matter how perfect the system is, it needs a safety net to deal with unforeseeable circumstances 
that's when the system becomes perfect, i.e. the argument and the thing that I was going to bring up in case the show didn't, but thankfully the show did it for me, is yes, this is why you have enforcers and you have uh, investigators and this, like, that section of it rather than it all just being drones because you need the safety net that can take care of the uh, one in two million chance of here's the person who's criminally asymptomatic. Uh, what do we do with them? Oh, well, we have enforcers and we have, uh, you know, investigators and they take care of it. So the system is perfect now because we have a safety net. <laughs> right. That's the definition of perfect. Um, yeah. <laughs> but like that, that is still a, that is still a, uh, an argument that the sh- that society is making right. of the first time that you begin to question the perfection of the system is to say, ah, well, that is why we have human operators who are able to course correct for the system right. and, and take care of it in the few cases where there's little blips that we're not sure of. But we have humans working on it, so it's fine, you know? <laughs> yeah, we have this um, exception, like the yes. space for of exception where, like, yes. you know... That's just the catch-all that we just throw everything else that doesn't work into. But like, so yeah, for the vast majority of the time, and then this dovetails with the, uh, well, so this is an argument for the functionality of the system. Yeah, not so much an argument for the purpose or the legitimacy of it. Uh, yeah. but hopefully we get that argument here as well. Um. Which is, uh, today the world enjoys a stable prosperity with the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. Um, so we see uh, it appears that the civil system's argument for its own legitimacy uh, is a utilitarian uh, type of argument. Um, but then, you know, uh, again, that dovetails well with... Uh, the, the quotation that the the model that that you had brought up which is um okay maybe it's not perfect but the vast majority of the time look at its effectiveness rate yeah. uh it's getting things right it's only one in two million uh so that means you know 100 uh, 1 million 999 uh out of two million is correct um yeah. Which is a very, you know, again, it's it's the same type of appeal to volume um, and volume of correctness <laughs> uh, that is that is uh, kind of uh, that's operating in the, the utilitarian uh, justification argument for the purpose of the, of the system. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jeremy Bentham loves the civil system. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Uh, yeah. Everyone's, uh, everyone's Epicurious is also uh, pretty cool with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, a little I, bit less, maybe, but he yeah. wishes that there was more hedonism or sex or something happening, but... <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you can't have everything, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, it's just got to be the greatest... It's the, it's the precisely calculated amount of hedonism that gives the greatest amount of happiness to the greatest number of people. Yeah. Uh, so can't argue with that. <laughs> um, so now it, it is nice. We hopefully now have a like other, we have an interlocutor here 
in the sh- within the show where the civil system is now has has an argument for like its own argument for why uh it is legitimate um i don't know if we have to let's not duke it out yet uh and stage this um philosophical debate yeah. um the one thing i will add um just because you know we're a uh, we're export audio, but we're on abnormal mapping. Um, and I would I would be remiss uh, if I did not call out. We have not even, uh, even with all of the, uh, I would say, severe problems that uh, have been raised, we haven't even gotten into the Marxist or materialist uh, argument. Yeah. Um, so uh, we've... That's that's in the wings, and I hope we get around to that <laughs> eventually. Yeah. But there is one, um, and uh, that that can also be brought to bear, I think, against this utilitarian um, uh, argument, um, you know, train of thought as well. Yeah, and again, for me, when I got to this scene, um, the the slight deflation that I felt at the reveal of you know, criminally asymptomatic syndrome um, was reinflated because it, I also appreciated this because it freed up what I, what I still thought was interesting about the stuff going in with Makishima um, away from just the question of the flaw in the system that needs to be fixed. Um, Because this provides the argument within the, you know, the systems argument that there is in fact already the catch for this sort of uh, flaw. This is accounted for. Yeah. Um, it has happened before. Uh, perhaps it's happened multiple times before. I, I have, I have theories. I have ideas about what's going on here. Maybe we'll get to the end and I'll talk about what I think the civil system is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll see how accurate I am. Per- yeah, perhaps. Um, I, I will say once again, uh, this argument is going to hang around. Um, a, we're going to learn more about the civil system and what it is, uh, and B, this argument is going to hang around. So, um, it certainly can't can't be dismissed uh, just yet. Um, yeah, I I don't know if you're are you ready to to move on to uh, um final. I guess the here? the one other thing that I'll say, uh, this is a, a question that hangs in my mind right now. And there's some moments where the show might begin to say that this thought that I've had is incorrect, but it hasn't fully uh, gone against it yet, which is there's also the question that hangs in my mind of whatever's happening to Makashima physiologically or, or whatever that makes him criminally asymptomatic. Is he Is Akane also that there's, there's consistently mm-hmm. talk about how, her crime coefficient is, remains high. Her hue does not become cloudy, despite these, despite this trauma that she goes through, seeing her friend die, going through the memory scoop. Um, her hue does not become cloudy. She's exceptional in this same, in this very similar way. Yes, and her and the and, uh, exceptionality is noted uh, repeatedly. Yes. And she doesn't get labeled as criminally asymptomatic because she's not committing crimes without the criminal coefficient going up, but 
in terms of other things, there seems to be still a certain similarity there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this, you know, idea of that, uh, is it, is it Masaoka who says this? Um, that she isn't afraid of her crime coefficient at all. Mm-hmm. It is. That, that statement right there feels like it could also very easily apply to Makashima. Now, Masaoka goes on to make other assumptions that she accepts things as they are, that she forgives society, acknowledges it, and accepts it. She probably believes unquestioningly in the meaning and value of being a detective. Those are additional sets of assumptions, perhaps about her will. Mm-hmm. Might be a thing that the system's also not reading. But this one thing that we're getting, she isn't afraid of her crime coefficient. She has no stress or anxiety around her crime coefficient. That's not what she's concerned about. Yeah. And then you and, could also say that Makishima is not concerned about that either. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a good thought. Yeah. Uh, we'll keep, I don't know in, where, we'll the, I don't know if mind. this will come up, but this may never get answered. Maybe it does. Maybe it gets answered in a different way. It's just, the th- I want to put forward that this is a thought that I have about Akane right now. Yeah. It's a good thought and we should um, keep it. We should keep it in mind. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm ready to move on to the next episodes. So episode 14 is titled Sweet Poison. This one's me, right? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Uh, a man in a bike or in a helmet, not a bike. (laughs) It's a, it's like a full head helmet. Um, breaks into a pharmacy, kills the staff and departs with drugs. Uh, when the public safety bureau arrives on the scene, they find that the security system failed to activate because the helmet apparently somehow blocked the cymatic scan, uh, thereby projecting a healthy crime coefficient. Later, the same man, uh, the same man attacks a woman named Hiroko Fuji in public, beating her to death with a hammer in front of a crowd. Um, and a psychopath scanner that comes by, uh, does nobody intervenes. The psychopath scanner scans him and seemingly doesn't even really take that much note of her or of him. Uh, starts scanning the woman and is like, "You seem to be in distress. Would you like counseling?" Uh, That's like cruel irony. Yeah. Um, at the scene uh, of this like public scene of this brutal act that everyone just kind of stands around and watches, uh, I stand up and begin pacing around my apartment, uh, uh-huh. being like, motherfucker, I'm gonna have to talk about Terry Yamashuji some more. Um, and having a bunch of thoughts and then going back to watching the episode where I find out that, uh, later the team learns that more cr- cr- uh, culprits wearing similar helmets robbed an armored car. Uh, Kogami eventually deduces that the murder of Hiroko Fuji must have had a motive, uh, leading their investigation to a man named Junmei Ito, who has a grudge against the victim. Um, they go to his apartment and find like a bunch of photos of her, you know, with like stabbed out eyes and whatever. There's like a, uh, um, effigy of her basically. Yeah. Yeah. That he's like, uh, brutalized stuff like that. Uh, and he is like hiding in the room and flees. Um, and, uh, in that attempt to escape, uh, Kagami deduces that the helmets work by copying the low crime coefficient of innocent bystanders as well as I think like their hue and stuff. Like it's like basically all of the data. Yeah. Um, it's essentially doing the read that like a scanner or the, uh, dominator would do. 
but in addition to doing that, somehow then projects that so that's what gets read. Um, and so this is helping them avoid apprehension. Um, and so, uh, you know, the dominator doesn't work, but with uh, Akane and Masaoka's help, he manages to, to apprehend the murderer. Uh, <clears throat> that takes us to episode, episode 15, the town where sulfur falls. Um, I will add one detail that I omitted from episode 14, uh, which is that uh, Choi Sugung, is it Choi or Choi? I think it's Choi. Choi. Yeah. Uh, Choi is at the scene of uh, Hiroko Fuji's murder and films it and posts it on the internet. Um, and as that uh, footage and um, other footage of the similar events starts to appear and circulate, um, people are, are reacting to this. Uh, and in the, in the meanwhile, uh, Makashima and Choe are, are distributing more helmets um, to uh, people uh, who then begin committing horrendous crimes uh, out in the open all around the city. Um, <clears throat> this first incites panic, uh, and then eventually that panic turns into mob violence, um, where the public uh, starts like fighting back. Um, in the name of self-defense. Um, I, I once again start pacing around my apartment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have such a good visual of that uh, because I, that's happened to me before too. Yeah. Uh, and for, for this very podcast. Um, uh, but yeah, so um, they take up arms to uh, initially defend themselves, uh, but then it quickly spirals out of control. Um where uh, there's this mob violence, uh, normal citizens are hunting or um, attacking and killing innocent people, um, and these like paranoid. Uh, I mean, it's it's mob violence. We know we know what that means. Yeah. Um, as the public safety bureau suppresses the riots, uh, so they're all sent out. It's like all hands on deck. All, all, every officer, inspector, enforcer we have go out and suppress these riots, hit the streets. Um, so while they're hitting the streets, Kagami uh, deduces that, um, hey, uh, isn't the uh, Ministry of Welfare's uh, headquarters like completely undefended right now? Um, and it, in fact, it is. Um, so he, def- he deduces the riots are intended to draw the police away from the Ministry of Welfare's Love Nona Tower. Um, it's not Love Nona, it's just Nona, but Kermarty yeah. um, High uh, reference. Um, uh, what's so special about this tower? Uh, well, it's where the civil system is located. Um, and uh, we see uh, Makashima and Choe uh, are, in fact, they're he- they are headed there. Um, that is their goal. Uh, so we see them um, uh, get there, break in. Uh, with a kind of crew of, of muscly men um, yeah. who also have helmets. Uh, and then um, we see Kogami, Kogami, Akane, and Kogari uh, also heading to the scene to respond. Um, also note on this episode, uh, while they're in the car, uh, Makashima and Choi basically talk about, um, like, Choi is like a hacker. Um, we're also going to do a thing where they talk about 
sci-fi that we may or may not get into. There's a good scene where they um, talk about like reading. And, yeah. Uh, and Makashima's like, uh, imagine a hacker be- being really into Gibson. <laughs> it's just too good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, Chai believes that like, it's odd because all of the, there's all these communications happening, but they all go through this tower. Um, but also the amount of like computation happening here to, to constantly be reading all of these, uh, you know, cymatic systems and everything. Uh, it just doesn't make sense that you could like have a computer of that size in one location or that you would put it all in one location. Yeah. And then also, why would you put it there? Even if it, even if you could fit it there, which is already in and of itself a question, um, you know, seemingly you would need too much computational power to fit it all in one location. But even if you could fit it in lo- one location, why would you, it's really unless risky. it's to hide it? Yeah. You specifically are trying to hide it and make it really hard to access. Um, so, uh, maybe we'll find out why. Yeah. So episode 16, the gates of judgment, uh, Kogami, Akane and Kagari go to the ministry of Welfare's Nona tower and discover that Makashima has already entered the building. Uh, they split into two groups. Kogami and Akane go to the top floor where Makashima is while Kagari heads to the basement. Um, following Choi, uh, Kogami and Akane encounter one of Choi's goons. Uh, but Kogami quickly takes him out and, also, they like get a helmet, or I think he already has a helmet mm-hmm. in this. Um, yeah, he does. Yeah, uh, from like the riots, he grabbed one. Um, but also now he has like a. I think both of them end up with like the the nail gun shooters as well. <clears throat> yes, they do. Both um, uh, Kogami and Kagari. He brings the helmet because he's like, "Oh, if Akane wears the helmet, then we can use the Dominator." And then yeah. he's like, "Oh shit, Makashima's here." Never mind. Yeah. It's just going to copy Makashima's zero crime coefficient. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's his initial plan. Um, then uh, Akane is injured in the process. Um, and she she has this part where she takes off her belt to like staunch the bleeding. And I was like, okay, whatever hollow outfits they have do have belts, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of um, odd. Yeah, I keep thinking about the hollow outfits constantly throughout mm. the show. <laughs> they, yeah, uh, just like pausing at certain moments and being like, "They don't have it. They don't have anything underneath this." <laughs> I assume there's some sort of like base clothing that it's over, because otherwise you just get too close to somebody and it's your skin touching. Yeah, well, we've seen yeah. like the base. We've seen it like switching on and off, so it is like a yeah. base outfit, but it's still kind of fun. <laughs> It's the it's the biggest thing I've been like weirdly concerned about in this show. <laughs> Cuz I know it's like not important. Yeah. The show doesn't seem to actually care about it and that's why I find it bizarre. Well, you caught a good anyway. detail there. Where is the belt yeah. from? <laughs> um, but yeah, she, well, she's staunching the bleeding. He's like go on without me. Uh, I'll catch up. Uh, we cut to Kagari, who enters the basement, uh, discovers a staircase. By the way, great stairs in this episode. S-rank stairs. Oh yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, uh, leaning down to the fourth floor, which is supposed to be the lowest floor of the building, um, or leaning down leaning below, below the fourth it. floor. Yeah, yeah, which is supposed to be the lowest floor. Uh, and so he keeps heading downwards and is basically like, "I have a bad feeling about this." Um, <laughs> yeah, Star really, Wars. really bad. <laughs> uh, so uh, heading downwards, he encounters uh, one of Ch- one of Choi's men. 
um, attempts to shoot him, but obviously I think isn't able to with the, I forget exactly. Oh, I think the dominator, he's lost signal. Yeah. That's the thing that's happened with him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he like fights one of yeah. the guy and like beats him and takes his yeah. nail gun. Yeah. Um, and, uh, also radio. Um, and Choi contacts him on the radio and is like, uh, you know, I'm currently hacking the final door. Come and find me. Um, we're going to go see what the inside of the civil system is. Uh, and basically tries to turn Kagari, uh, over to their side. Um, it's unsuccessful, but, but Kagari continues on. Um, and, uh, yeah, as he has towards the location, uh, he asks Choi to destroy the core before he arrives so that the, uh, so that two of the things he despises will disappear uh, from the world. Um, yeah, Kagari is basically like, Choi's like, you obviously, like, don't you despise the civil system for, like, taking your freedom and all the other, uh, you know, injustices it's perpetrated on you? And he's like, yes, but I also hate you. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to kill you and then you can kill the civil system. And then that's what I want. Yeah. Um... Kugami and Makashima uh, finally meet and face off. We get the beginning of the series uh, happens. Um, and despite Kugami's experience in hand-to-hand combat, he is unable to defeat Makashima and is dispatched quite easily. Uh, however, he is saved by Akane, who runs up behind Makashima and knocks him out with the helmet. Uh, and um, Kugami basically, like, kill him, uh, but she... And she, like, is raising the helmet as if she's going to, and then she decides to arrest him. Um, I have a cat trying to break in. Um, And then, meanwhile, an injured Kagare manages to make it to the final floor of the system. Uh, He battles some more people, uh, sort of limping along, and gets to the core of the civil system. Stands in shock uh, beside Choi, who... Uh, is excitedly filming the core and is basically, he says, I don't even need to destroy this because once I show it to the public, uh, this is no so one's bad. Have faith in this anymore. This, this is so bad. Um, <laughs> but then, uh, Joshu comes up behind him, uh, fires a, a weapon. Uh, they both like fire at the same time. Um, and, uh, Choi gets Akira exploded. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we're revealed uh, that the the chief Joshu uh, is robot robotic underneath. Uh, and then she points the gun at Kagari, um, who's like, "Wait, you're an android? What the fuck's going on? Uh, or a cyborg or something?" Um, and uh, the the gun uh, is initially non lethal paralyzer, uh, but then she forcibly changes it to destroy decomposer. Um, and Kagari smiles and then is shot. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's not, you don't see him being shot. Well, you, you essentially do. You get the yeah. same animation that we've had of like when someone gets shot. Yeah. Um, of like the gun and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's the episode 16. You don't see his body get a cure No, you don't. And, yeah. <clears throat> Spoiler, we won't. Um, but he, he's dead. Yeah. I can, I'll tell you that. So, uh, 
Yeah, I, uh, I've got a feeling that around this juncture <laughs> is where you're planning to uh, talk about yeah. Teriyama Shuji. Should, should um, I finally get into it? I think so. I'm, okay. I'm ready for it. Um, so I'm going to get into like my broad ideas about what's happening here and how it relates to Teriyama Shuji. Um, I want to start out with like a little more context around him as a figure since I'm going to talk about some of his stuff more. Um, and again, writing on his work is not the most accessible in English. Um, so I'm going to start off with like sort of, I, I think he's primarily known for his theatrical work, although he did a lot of multimedia stuff uh, in the U S I think his movies are best to known just because of the most uh, easily accessible, um, you know, DVDs were released. That stuff was copied. You can go to like rare film M and watch it still not super well viewed in the U S but I think his movies are the main thing people know, but sort of broadly uh, his impact is more about theater and within film. A lot of his stuff was about, um, trying to emphasize, like, I think seeing film as in this weird space where it is a lot like theater, but in some ways has this, like, additional tinge of reality or has these other directions it can go. And him feeling, having these, like, very strong feelings about theater is trying to do to film this thing that he wants theater to be as well, to, like, push film away from the other things that it could be that he doesn't want it to be. Um, that's a, a big oversimplification, but, uh, I'll get into like his theatrical stuff. Cause I think it's starting where point. you understand his work the most. Um, so, uh, a lot of his early theatrical stuff, um, is the, under these productions, uh, by Tenjo Sajiki or uh, peanut gallery is often how it gets translated into English. It means like gallery on the top floor or something, but it's like, uh, peanut gallery is getting, I think a similar idea. And he was doing a lot of, uh, very provocative theater. Uh, there's a lot of focus on death, sexuality, um, sadomasochism and like sadomasochistic themes or images were employed quite often. Um, and a lot of this was around ideas that he had of theater and reality. And he had sort of this idea that like theater is, uh, fiction. There, there's a lot of stuff where you go to the theater and uh, he often favored sort of min minimalist design, play design, um, where the spectator has to imagine a lot of stuff that's happening on the stage. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some stuff to suggest what you should be imagining, but that you are invited into fantasy when you go to the theater. That you're Rather like constructing than, the space as well. Yes. Imaginatively. Yeah. And ultimately, his idea, especially in this at this point, is theater is fiction, but also so is reality. He is the 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 topics of the the plays um, or the theatrical performances, because he has a certain bone to pick with like the play, which I'll get into. Um is to then also try to push the viewer to consider the roles that you fulfill within society, within your life as also a kind of fiction that you are constantly living. So there, there's ways in which his stuff parallels with other, uh, ideas that have been brought up around theater. You know, there's the classic, all the world's a stage. Mm -hmm. Um, there's lots of queer theory around, uh, performance and identity and the way that those interact, that identity is a thing that is performed, um, that like in these different contexts. Yes. Um, and that like identity is like, uh, 
mediated between like the individual, the person viewing it and like the performance and the ways that you try to perform things like gender, like gender is a thing that is performed. Um, and like the, the various levels to that, all of this stuff, it, you know, also exists in, in queer theory. And I think he's like engaged in that. Um, also engaged in a lot of other stuff happening. He's like in the, especially the sixties and seventies is when a lot of his work is happening. And there's like similar stuff happening in say like Germany and France and stuff at this time as well. He's also interested in like weird fourth wall breaking stuff in early cinema, like thirties French cinema, um, cites Unchen Andalou as like a highly influential film on his work. Um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, his initial productions especially uh, are being performed on a stage, but are trying to resist especially uh, Western notions that come out of things like Shakespeare uh, that have the play as like the play, i.e. the written version, as this like very dominant and important thing. Um, and he viewed the play, the literature, the written thing. Uh, as something that is standing in opposition to what he cared about, which is the theater. And theater, when he's talking about it, he's talking about a space of relationship that exists between the actors and the spectators. That that is what the actual art is. That's what theater is about. It is not about the written word. The The text itself of the play is less important to him than the space that exists between the actor and the spectator. That's like the distinguishing trait. Yes. Of, yeah. <clears throat> um. And so he becomes really concerned with this idea of the space that is created and the relationship that is created between actor and spectator, and then how to break down the, the separations that exist between those roles. Um, a lot of the stuff that he has is things that are, again, meant to be provocative. And so especially in his early period, and this continues throughout his work, but um, the, one of the things that he's going to end up doing is street theater. And he's pushed this direction because as he increases in popularity, he begins to attract voyeurs who are there to see the the erotic things, the provocative things, the sexuality, the sadomasochism. And voyeurs are the opposite of what he wants. He doesn't want people who are coming to involve, uh, derive enjoyment from looking at these things. He wants people to cross over that line rather than come to like view and just gain the pleasure from the viewing. <clears throat> so, one of his first steps away from it is Throw Away Your Books, Rally in the Streets. Not the film, but the original performance. Um, from what little I've been able to find about the play, because most of the stuff that you can find is about the, the film, or about the performance, or, you know, the, the theatrical performance. Um, it involved uh, students, it involved a lot of student poetry, and rock music, and things like this. But it, there's a there's a vibe in which, like... It feels like a maybe a really gussied up open mic <laughs> sometimes uh -huh. when people are describing it. Um, I think the movie's maybe more interesting, but it is this beginning of this idea of breaking down the, the walls between actor and spectator because he's bringing in these non-professional actors and having them do these things and uh, doing these performances and sort of starting to break it. But what really happens is he does street theater. And his first, I'm going to describe two, his first and his last uh, street theater performances that, that he put on. Um, I'm also going to talk about uh, Throw Away Your Books, which has some examples in case people have watched that, uh, just to sort of call that out as well. <clears throat> but his first one is called uh, Solomon, the Man-Powered Airplane. 
And in it, and this is this was common in a uh, format for a lot of his street theater stuff, uh, th- this beginning part of the format, which is that spectators are given hand-drawn maps that have these sort of vague instructions with like kind of confusing directions with arrows and kind of vague descriptions of what's going to be happening at various locations that are to varying degrees misleading or accurate. Um, But people are meant to go and find a theater and the theater is in quotation marks and spectators describe confusion about, am I walking into an actual store right now or am I walking into a theater that has been decorated to look like a store, (laughs) you know, (laughs) things like that. And actors are given roles that they have to perform, but there's a lot of improvisation to it. Um, Some examples of roles that they're performing in uh, Solomon, the the man powered airplane. Uh, One person had to go around trying to buy, and uh, this is in quotes from one of the descriptions I I saw parents, which become useless. (laughs) Another person is trying to sell crocodiles, uh, which I believe would be an illegal thing to do in Japan, uh-huh. <laughs> especially probably without a license and stuff. Um, Hard to acquire those <clears throat> there too. Yes. Um, another person is running a marathon wearing a sign that says speak to me and he can only stop if someone actually stops him to speak to him. <clears throat> These are all roles that people are playing in this. And people are meant to go around and find people and interact with them. Many of the actions are meant to draw attention from police. And when that happens, the actors are instructed to respond. It's just a play officer. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get into this as well. (laughs) Because there's a specific thing that he has going on here with that too. Um, And spectators are encouraged to take part by interacting with the actors, singing along to songs, etc. Um, and at the climax of the the performance, all the actors come together into one location and claim, climb into a quote-unquote airplane made of uh, wooden paper, which actually shows up, I think, in Throwaway. The descriptions that I've read of it sound like the one that it shows up in Throwaway Your Books. <clears throat> and they fly off in it, quote-unquote, uh, leaving their, and this was also in quotes, their families and sterile society behind. And at the very end, the airplane is burned. Um, <laughs> in uh, the the movie, Throw Away Your Books, Rally in the Streets, you will see the plane. You'll see some characters fly off in it. There's some weird, uh, maybe, s- symbology that's happening in that. Um, and then there's also a part where you see the plane, the airplane being burned. Um, and... You know, various people have read this as like uh, the airplane that is burned is like the spirit or perhaps, let's say, will (laughs) that motivates those to like break out of society and do something else. Yeah, the the vehicle. Um, Yeah. And that vehicle being like an ephemeral thing and a thing that is like ultimately coming from within rather than without. Um. I'm going to talk about a a couple instances that show up in Throw Away Your Books, Railing the Streets, which has sort of an overarching plot, um, has a like meta textual uh, framing device, and then also has these moments where you cut away to what seem to be recordings of street performances. One of them is called Introduction to Drug Drug Abuse for Young People. It gets labeled as such. It is scrawled across the ground. and I like it already. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and what we'd see is it's just people sitting in public, s- smoking 
you know, I'm assuming marijuana. Um, people are like passerbys are walking by and like stopping and be like, they're filming some people smoking. Like what's going on here? Uh, but specifically it is framed as drug abuse, which is criminal action that's be- happening in public and is being recorded. Um, and it ends with one of the people standing up uh, after, you know, taking a big puff of a joint and blowing it into the camera as if to invite the audience to inhale the smoke. <laughs> um, there's also uh, a sequence where there's a woman with a p- uh, punching bag that is partially wrapped in like a white sack. And she's yelling at passerbys, imploring them, don't keep quiet when something is making you mad. You know, uh, and I made this punching bag. I'm hanging it up in the street so that everyone can come and bash it and calm their nerves. <laughs> um, and she she shouts, I thought all of Tokyo would come and it would be full of holes like hum- uh, honeycomb. But then a cop came and he said, you can't hang it like that. I don't know why not. <laughs> uh, some people come by and are like, put that away, like that punching bag away or whatever. You don't like hear what they say, but she's like sort of repeating like, why did you ask me that? Are you a cop? You have to tell me if you're a cop. <laughs> Uh, it's not a crime to hang this up. Um, and then it like cuts to, we see later it hanging up with a guy holding a sign that's hard to read because the copy I have is fuzzy, but seems to be some sort of like, uh, you know, please come and punch this when you're angry or whatever, like some employing people to come do something. I know that it starts with police. Um, and, uh, we see that the punching bag is like a giant stuffed dick. It's just like a giant penis (laughs) that's hanging from a light pole that people are supposed to come punch. There are also various other shots of street performances that are a little bit less, like, feel complete in what they're doing than these ones. But, like, one of them is doing the titular throw away your books rally in the streets where a a man runs out into the middle of a busy street, throws a, like, giant stack of books on the ground and, like, into the asphalt and, like, kicks them and is, like, running around. Um, (laughs) I'm now going to read a description um, of a play Uh, The final play that he did, Knock. Uh, The final, like, theatrical performance. Theatrical theater. Um, This is from a book called, or uh, a dissertation or something. I'd have to actually double-check what it is. But um, it's Teriyama Shuji, Japanese avant-garde theater from the 1970s, reviewed four decades later. (laughs) And it's by uh, Wolfgang Zubek. Yeah. But I'm going to read his... uh, description and there's a little bit of his review in here of knock the end of teriyama's street theater teriyama's performance of knock was the climax and sudden end of his street theater uh, experiments various theater activities took place in almost 30 different performance sites before approximately a thousand spectators altogether and the entire event event lasted about 30 hours it began in the afternoon at 3 p.m on a saturday in april 1975 and ended the next day at 9 p.m in the evening the spectacle finished with a scandal that was overblown by the media uh, like in Solomon, the man-powered machine, um, each playing spec- uh, paying spectator got a map uh, at a subway station in downtown Tokyo. There were designated places in which one had to walk. Um, and theater critic Senda Akihiko, who's the one who wrote the report that this person's then using to review the play, um, participated in the experiment, got his quote-unquote admission ticket from a man with an eye patch dressed strangely in black. Uh, 
The hand-drawn map contained written statements of what one could expect at different sites, but not in detail. Every spectator had to find his own quote-unquote personal drama en route, putting together all the pieces like a puzzle. This forced each individual spectator to look at everyday life in a more theatrical way. For example, there was a puzzling set named Drosselmeyer's Clockwork Store. Senda was confused about whether he would find a normal business in some in a somewhat strange store or whether it would just be a regular theatrical set. Sometimes the protagonists could be recognized easily by their costumes or performances, such as an acrobatic act in a park or a loudly arguing couple on the street surrounded by spectators. However, fiction would spill over into reality at any moment, as with a scene in which a postman called out, Stop! That thief! While pointing at a woman who was fleeing, passerbys ran after her and took her to a police station where it took some time to sort out, <laughs> sort out the quote-unquote fiction from reality. <laughs> uh, in other instances, actors and spectators could not be separated at first glance, as in a public bath in which everyone sat naked in the water while bathing. It was only when a group action began that became, who, became clear who was acting and who was watching. As a result, the protagonists often did not seem different from ordinary people because they acted, uh, protagonists here being like the actors, mm -hmm. because they acted in scenes which could actually be happening on any given day. A theatrical framework which dictates that spectators do not uh, do the watching while only the actors are watched was discontinued in Knock. Spectators uh, who. <clears throat> everyday people doing things in an everyday way, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, spectators who were on the lookout for typical theatrical scenes did not always know who was an actor. For an actor, it was also not always clear who belonged to the paying public and who was there by chance, especially when the spectators appeared little by little. Sometimes nothing in particular happened before the spectators, because Terayama wanted to deliberately confuse the audience with some of the statements on the maps. <laughs> this opens up new perspectives, namely that everyone should be an incognito actor. For example, the police officer who always appeared with his bicycle at a per the performance stops may have also been an actor instead of an observer. Uh, the play scripts and productions were not created by Terayama himself, but by some of his co-workers. Um, there was no dialogue written in a traditional linear manner, but rather a menu of numbered sentences that could be spoken by the actors at will. This format made it easier to match actions exactly with the play schedule. The Big Knock Scandal. Senda wrote uh, about a big scandal that occurred at the end of Knock. The climax of the event was the appearance of mummies in a park during the evening. For this purpose, the actors were completely covered in bandages. While in costume, one of them tried to enter a home. The housewife was so startled, startled by the strange man and scary visitor that she notified the police. Fiction had changed into reality again, but this time it was not planned. The next day, the incident was picked up by the media, and slanderous coverage exaggerated into a scandal as upright journalists were outraged over this annoyance of peaceful citizens. In the Asahi Shinbun, uh, Teriyama got an opportunity to justify his experiment. He were, wrote that he was looking for new perspectives that would wake people up from their trivial everyday lives. The title, Knock, referred to knocking on locked hearts as well as locked doors. However, since there was an, uh, an inherent danger of public disturbance during this kind of play, the authorities prohibited it from being repeated. Since the favorite idea of Terayama's was that art and theater were more effective cha uh, change agents for society than political agitation, it was very difficult for him to accept that the experiments like Knock were no longer allowed to continue. What he then moves into is forcing uh, audience participation in um, playhouses, 
where there would sometimes it would escalate to, uh, you know, physical contact that would turn into violence at, at times. Wow. Um, actors were sometimes attacked uh, because of this, because people didn't fully know it was going to happen. Um, there's one instance in which an audience member was, was attacked. And then like Terry, Emma, like brought her like flowers and stuff and apologized to her when she, afterwards. Um, but uh, yeah, because he wasn't able to sort of do this stuff within the street, he then had to try and force more interaction between audiences and, uh, you know, the, the actors, um, within this like playhouse setting. Um, wow. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that is absolutely wild. Uh, um, I like, okay. I like where this is going. Yeah. So let, let me now get to ideas of crime, theater, and art. So crime is a frequent focus of his work. Um, even the names of some of the titles of his plays have crime in them. Um, even when there's not necessarily a clear crime happening, it might be like the crime of this character. And then it's like mostly family drama that's happening, but in like a weirdly staged way where you're like having to move through different rooms within a home in order to, and you're only getting pieces of the the play at any time. Um, so, uh, in addition to this, uh, it's sort of a, a frequent focus. Um, there's one, uh, I think it's like a, a play and movie uh, that I haven't been able to find the, the movie version of. Um, but it, it includes a plot line where one of the actresses who's just the actress who's like supposed to play the seventh daughter or whatever, uh, like she doesn't even have like a name within the, the you know, playbook. Uh, within the play is warned by the actual hairdresser who's also playing a hairdresser that this whole thing is a setup to murder her under the pretext that it is a play that is being done and so she's not actually being murdered but they actually are going to murder her and the hairdresser tries to warn her of this <laughs> okay now they don't actually murder her at the end i don't think <laughs> right but part but... of the plot of the the play is this like layered it's just like nested yes. uh yeah. metafictional like uh referencing and so often when terry Masuji talks about crime he specifically talks about this idea of theater as crime as his goal being making theater into something criminal also more broadly art and by that it means specifically making it into something that is breaking the rules of society and challenging people in that to confront things um, often the political dimension of this is not explicit. What is it that he wants them to do? That's not always explicit. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll get into some stuff where it seems like his initial uh, desire is to drive communal action and break down class uh, barriers. I'm going to read from some excerpts from his manifesto from 1875. Um, but I'll also point out that like, if you watch throw away your books rally in the streets, Marx comes up twice, specifically Das Kapital. Uh, there's one part in a, a scene of a bunch of men in a shower room showering where one of them talks about, my dad sent me like how to succeed without trying. He should have sent me Das Kapital. Um, and there's another one where they're interviewing this woman uh, about all the things that she thinks about in relation to society and things like that. And she's like, you know, people don't, uh, 
not enough like people enjoy dancing or like she's having all these sort of general uh disaffected youth thoughts and then they're like asking well like what book do you read like what's your favorite book and it's like oh like every day i read like a little bit of the bible i like keep it in the bathroom uh there's part like well have you ever read like marx's das kapital and she's like what (laughs) um but also the the title of the movie is throw away your books uh which is Perhaps I think also suggesting Marx is coming up twice as a specific book to read and suggesting that reading Marx is less valuable than like creating the actual communal effort that could drive social change. Mm-hmm. Um, this also gets lampooned in a scene where uh, the two of the like main characters are having dinner at an American restaurant and in another table, this guy is talking about how, uh, like this woman asks this guy, Oh, what are you reading? And he says, I'm reading this book about how reading books can really change someone's life. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which is just, you know, uh, um, we did a, uh, ornate stairwells episode on, uh, throw away your books rolling the streets just recently. Me and M, uh, and M was like, this is like a, is skewering so many people. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But so how is he trying to achieve theater as crime? Part of it is crime as theater. So as I said, uh, performances sometimes become violent and angry, are meant to attract police, um, are breaking social rules around, say, sex and nudity, uh, relationships to death, uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, There are times when, uh, you know, I'll, I'll point to the introduction of drug abuse for young people where then they blow smoke into the camera. There's sometimes an incitement to the audience to take part in crimes. And this was sometimes more direct in the theatrical performances than in the movies. Although throw away your books also includes a part where, um, basically, uh, at the very beginning, one of the actors who's talking seemingly as the actor, or maybe as the character, it's confusing because the character has the same name as the actor. Um, He's talking to the audience and is basically saying, hey, you know what you should do? You should basically try to make moves on, like, the girlfriend that you're here with. Uh, And if it goes well, like, that's great. And if it goes poorly, um, this is a movie. You don't know my name and I don't know your name. So, like, it's fine. (laughs) Um, And so all this is suggesting, like, art as alibi. Um, That... There's this other um, specific thing that he talks about, about uh, artists taking the role of witness to their own creation. And so in the act of witnessing gives them alibi to the action Um, that labeling something as art provides this like slightly extra remove that permits more space for things that otherwise would be viewed as purely criminal. Um, you know, to, to have someone say, oh, officer, it's just a play. Don't worry. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, I know I'm committing a crime right now, but it's it's actually just a play. So it's fine. <laughs> um, this is this is one of the other things he's playing with. Yeah. Now I'm going to read. It feels like there's a few there's a few ways you could think about that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to read a little bit from his manifesto. It's longer and I'll, I'll um, link to to both the one uh, thing I mentioned earlier, as well as this manifesto in the episode description. 
So we can read this entire manifesto. Also, apologies as I'm trying to read this because the first uh, page of the, the manifesto is bizarre in that there's a photo of him pasted over the text and then the missing text is pasted on the next page. And so you have to like read back and forth sometimes as you like get to uh, the photo of him. You have to jump to the other page to see what word he's obscuring. That's amazing. so anyway, <laughs> that's an amazing <laughs> thing to put in your manifesto. Yeah. Um, so, uh, this is stuff where he's talking about the actor specifically. Um, let me see what, where's the best spot for me to, I guess I can just like go into this. The whole actor part's not that long. Um, so the actor needs the power to develop his imagination in his imagination, a magical situation in which to implicate, uh, the audience. The actor's function is neither to be observed nor to be on display, but rather to instigate, to draw in um, the others. And others is in in, uh, italics here. The first step in acting is to create a deadlock relationship with the audience. In order to give meaning to his stage presence, the actor must be able to invent his own language. In order to express a magical situation, he must possess the power, for instance, to jump without feet. The actor technique consists above all of his power to create relationships, cohesive contacts. Theater is chaos. (laughs) Therefore, an actor must eliminate the barriers between himself and others. He must be able to catalyze non-discriminating relationships. Dramaturgy is the creation of a relationship. This is to say, an encounter through drama which involves the refusal to regard the actor-audience relationship as a class relationship, and the determination instead to develop the relationship both mutual and communal. Thus, the element of, of chance contained within the group consciousness can be organized. To act is to sustain this relationship. Um, so one, I'm going to break down a little bit of what he's saying here, which is that like, in standard uh, notions of theater that have the divide between the actor and the spectator. There is this like exchange, like there's the paying spectator, there's the actor, there's this class division that is occurring in that. And he's talking about the refusal to regard the actor-audience relationship as a class relationship to Mm -hmm. like, by refusing that, you are able to then break through and create this communal stuff. Um, and organized group consciousness. Uh, it is important to understand that while the actor uh, addresses himself to the metronymic faculties of the audience, this is it. Uh, it this in itself is not drama. Sorry, that part's especially hard to read between the two. <laughs> I'm like reading between his legs right now. <laughs> um, the actor merely the actor is merely a pilot leading the way to drama. The actor must not designate, uh, he must, uh, the actor must not designate, he must name. To this end, he must continually strive to modernize his style. He must never allow himself to become identified with the object represented. The actor's task, according to Roland Barthes, uh, is a metaphorical act. The actor must not memorize each individual action. He must, on the contrary, perpetually forget Each new situation is merely uh, the accumulation of all those which have been forgotten. Um, He has other stuff where he then goes on. Um, He's so I think it's like he's essentially deconstructing all of the 
rigid, like con- constituting elements of like the play as we know it, such as like everything an actor, like the lines, the actions, like everything that's fixed in like a standard play that constitutes yeah. that play as such is like being uh uh thrown out like rejected um yeah. along with like the frame of like the social frame of the entity of the play where you have like the spectators paying for like the service and so then you have like them as like you know uh buying and then the actors as like you know performing this service this like capitalist type context that is also yeah. like being uh attempted to like he's attempting to essentially to like destroy yeah and and seems most happy to do that within street theater where people are paying money to get the map and like go and attend the performance uh but also it is just happening on the street so anyone walking by can like briefly be a spectator and then they're like brought in every effort is made to like immediately collapse like yeah. any distinction uh, uh between like <laughs> the, them and the actors anyone who's like perf- quote unquote yeah. performing the play like they're they become performers yeah and that that paying audience and passerby are also like being collapsed and then that's also being collapsed into actor yeah <laughs> um so i started pacing around when I got to uh, specifically the, you know, part where everyone stands around as a, as an unacting spectator, that there's a a divide that is happening um, between this brutal murder that's happening in front of everyone. And then this like inaction. And there's an easy way to read this as like, no, nobody helps up anyone in trouble anymore. But I think this is specifically getting into this idea of like, the spectator versus the actor. Yeah, and and I will say a moment that is uh very explicitly symbolic of like the nature of the system of at like the aspects of the system that Makashima is like taking issue with. Yeah, that he's like uh, aiming at. Yeah. It's like represented in this like division that happens where people like won't can't won't whatever intervene. Yes. Um, and then as it develops and, you know, it, it gets revealed, oh, this is all part of his plan. We are all acting within his plan, i.e. he is directing all of this as a performance where, yes, it starts with there is the 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 brutal murder that's being done by an actor and there are spectators who do not act. But then it escalates into there are people who are doing this mob action but in doing so they're becoming like the actors um and that breakdown it becomes confusing to the the police who is like these people with the criminal coefficients who are trying to do these things who are these other people who are coming in like that that starts breaking down and they're all doing the same thing but what is that thing now (laughs) like what how do we even understand what the thing is like the vi- the violence that we're that's being committed, like how do we even understand what that thing is now that it like these distinctions have been so collapsed and like yes. non criminal people, non criminal in the sense of like you know they're not uh, the civil 
sees them as as non-criminalists are now like out you know doing <laughs> doing the same shit this violence yeah uh, with the mass people um and then also the reveal that the police are also meant to be spectators and actors and broken down where they are also doing what they're supposed to do within the framework of the play or the performance. Um, and this then also includes this final breakdown. That is what, you know, you, you can, it, it is framed as this is a diversion because they're going to find out what the civil system is, but, but what is Makashima going to find out what the civil system is? Except one, an attempt to, you know, I think he's going into with it with the knowledge that Kogami might come. Yes. And that is, I am now provoking also this relationship between us yes. and, and trying to further that one, as well as I'm also trying to break down this barrier between the people and the civil system by under, by being able to perceive the civil system in the same way the civil system is able to perceive us. Yeah. And re reveal it or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then this, I started thinking about the other killers as well. And we don't really get much about what Makishima thinks about, um, the guy who's in the, who is hacking the robots to kill his bullies. Oh right? yeah. Yeah. We don't, we don't get that same relationship around like you've disappointed me or whatever, but we specifically get Makishima's disappointment around Oryu seems to be around. And it's also the, the failure that Kagami recognizes which is that she is creating art that she wants spectators to view and it all of it is just about spectators seeing it in a way that is different than like what toma did which was something that was like meant to in some way be more provoking was meant to be making these statements and yeah inciting insight things. some this sort is, of realization or like yeah. contemplation this is all about her maintaining this barrier between herself as the artist and her art as the art and the spectator or the viewer as this other separate entity who views her art. Hence why her goal was to just put it where most people would see it. And that's yeah. like the predominant goal. Um, and then Senguji also has this failure around and what Makishima specifically tests then around is this class uh, this barrier and this like class barrier between like him and the rest of the world and specifically him as the hunter and the prey. Um, and again, Makishima is trying to break that barrier as well. Uh, when he brings in Kogami and when he, he turns it into just a like trophy hunt into a an duel. actual duel. Yeah. yeah. And then eventually like uh, Senguji being the, the prey. It's yeah. like inverted. Um. So yeah, all of this is me then realizing Makishima throughout all of this is a Teriyama-like director who is working to try to break down these barriers that exist between people. Specifically, at, at its highest level, the civil system and everyone else. Yeah, and all of the like categor categorizations and distinctions that are like... Uh, established like th via the civil system and established yeah. and maintained. Um, and then there is a way that, because I also had this moment of, it felt like we were moving into this realm of art. And then I, I said, okay, well, what is art about Senguji? What is art about 
these like mass killings or, you know, these like killings in the street, these public killings and murders with the masks. Um, but if you take it, the perspective of the art is Makashima is the artist and what he is staging is he is finding these people who he thinks will be good actors and he is testing them to see how they perform within him establishing these setting up these like moments of uh things meant to shake up and challenge and break things down yeah um, constructing these pieces around them yeah uh with this with the uh the larger goal um that you stated yeah um and you know it also gets emphasized with makishima being the only one who could create the masks because he would be the only one who could move around freely in order to obtain the materials to put these things together to then give to people to be his actors. So, yeah. <laughs> um, it, hopefully it, this all makes sense and I'm not just ranting. <laughs> no, no, not but, at all. Yeah. Um, I think one image that uh, that stands out for me um, in, in support of, of everything you're talking about, um, because like, I mean the the riots, uh, especially, are I think a very strong, um, you know, uh, proof of of what you're saying. Um, the the way that that's orchestrated and then um, how it's discussed and and how it plays out. Um, but the image that stands out for me is the when Kogami and Akane arrive uh, to this group of rioting people, and Kogami like throws the EMP grenade and whatnot. Yeah. There's a shot of them arriving and there's just a crowd of people like together, uh, like a mass of people yeah. rioting. And it's like people with masks and people without masks. And it's not. So initially it's like the average citizens are attacking people with masks. Um, and we, we see that that's like, you know, step two of this, uh, like sequence that, that happens with the writing, um, like start attacking the people with the masks out of like revenge or self-defense or whatever. Um, but when Kogami and Akane show up, that's not what's happening anymore. Like in these shots that we get, it's not that the people, um, without the masks are attacking people with masks. They're all just rioting. Like they're not even fighting each yeah. other along those lines anymore. Um, they're all just like rioting uh together um in this like completely chaotic uh way. Um but it's exactly as you uh as you said and as uh Teriyama, like, you know, was attempting, where like all of these distinctions have completely uh, broken down, um, but in a way that um, is like f bringing or forcing uh, or, or something like in between that, uh, bringing or forcing people together, uh, like closer and closer uh, to make them like uh, aware of this like closeness and then to make that something that is like producing action or somehow like imbued with uh, leading to action. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, that's what stands <clears throat> out for me 
um, is especially like that image um, as kind of like the cap, uh, kind of like the capstone of this like performance, uh, so to speak, um, that Makashima is staging. Yeah. Um, and there is also, I mean, he says some things as well about, um, I don't know if you have the specific uh, quotations here, but around like uh, essentially people failing to recognize like and perceive danger around them, things like that, that they have like <clears throat> that they've become so accustomed to the, the spot that they are in where they have lost this additional ability. Um, and so that's like the initial reason why no one is watching, but then it continues to progress beyond that. Or no one's acting. Everyone's standing and watching during yeah. the murder, and no one is acting on it. Um, and it's because they ha- haven't got it. But then it turns into people being like, "How do I do an improvised weapon?" And someone's like, "I think if you grab like a house plant," and someone else is like, "A house plant." <laughs> that part was very funny. Just like yeah, just like grab anything <laughs> yeah. around your house. Um. But yeah. Then it it like escalating to this part where like the the distinction between those become increasingly unclear. Um. And then there's moments when the police come in and then some of them are like, Hey, we're not the mask guys. <laughs> why yeah, why all, are you subduing us? All of a sudden trying to like reassert. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. When, when the like civil system via the police, via its agents is like taking control again. Um, these like categories are like being reasserted with that, uh, with it taking control again. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'll also, um, one thing I'll add is, uh, in the midst of all these riots, um, Kogami is like reflecting on, um, the, you know, he identifies the helmet wearers as, as victims. Um, and, uh, he also reflects on this question that keeps coming up, which is what does this world define crime as, uh, define as crime to begin with um which leads us back to you know this distinction is is uh thrown into disorder um uh between you know the helmet wearers and the victims of their crimes criminals and non-criminals uh and then the very category itself of of crime um are all things that are like profoundly destabilized in the uh in this performance uh yeah so i absolutely buy this um makashima as a teriyama-esque uh uh artist essentially um deploying art uh in order to uh assail uh the foundations of this system that you know, we are we advanced our critique of the <laughs> of the system uh, earlier, um, but yeah, suffice it to say, a system with with all these problems, um, he's attacking these categories that uh, are like the weak points, essentially. Um, yeah, where uh, that that reveal the um, the illegitimacies or the uh, injustices of the of the system. Um, so, uh, yeah, I absolutely buy that and, uh, it will be fun to, as we get to the next few episodes in the ending, um, to see how this plays out, 
because uh, now it's good. It's going to be a different experience for me as well. Um, thinking about all of this, uh, yeah. Well, as we as we go through the the rest, um, <clears throat> I guess for me to just say, I'll, I'll last a little bit about Terry Mousuji as well. Um, is I find him really fascinating as like both a an artist and theorist and you know he's constantly doing his theory through his art um i there's also stuff that like like some of the stuff that he does especially as it moves into like violence erupting at some of his staged plays and things um this is a little bit extreme for me i find it fascinating but there's like there's a point at which like uh when i also think about what he's doing where it's like uh, in even more like uh, strict and limiting society, would it just necessitate him to go to the level of Makishima? <laughs> would he yeah. stop, or would he just also go to this level of like? If the problem uh, of the society was was that much more severe, yeah, then would um, the intervention, yeah, would the intervention needed be that much more severe as well? Yeah, would the would the crimes being uh you know, incited by the work, not be go smoke pot, but, uh, I am going to like supply materials to, to murderers. <laughs> <laughs> um, who knows? Yeah. I, d- I don't know where. And I, I also think this being like, there are lots of critiques of like Terry Amashuju is probably, th- there's lots of critiques of his work as like sexist. Um, I think some of it is there. And I think also if you look at most of his characters in his movies and things, um, they are often highly defined by the constrictive social roles that they are put into. Um, and so while it's true that like all of his mothers are kind of these like bad mothers who, uh, children struggle against, um, all of his like daughters are these sort of dejected abandoned daughters. Uh, like all this is like persists. Um, if you look at his like male characters, they are also not, super fleshed out as like human beings because so much of it is about like the, the role that the you play as like is, actor, yeah. but then also like the roles that you have in society and trying to draw those connections. So, um, and the like attempts to break out of that, especially in a modern society that's becoming increasingly like disillusioned and disconnected from others, uh, where what you are left with is the role rather than the actual relationships and social functions that those roles once served and and perhaps in a way that felt more beneficial as more and more of like the relationship that those roles and were around sort of deteriorate the roles themselves become all there is. And it becomes even more like stifling and, and, uh, difficult to inhabit. Um, well, on that note, um, <laughs> do you want to, uh, <laughs> do you want to go ahead and conclude here? Um, I think we have a lot to, to think about. Um, yeah, I don't know if you had more that you wanted to say, but I, I, I want to do my prediction of what the civil system is. Okay. Yeah. There, there is, there's certainly more to say, um, but we have a whole other discussion and I think, uh, I think we, we've, we've covered a lot, um, already. Um, so yeah. I, I feel, I feel good wrapping up, but yes, I want to hear your, I want to hear your prediction. So I think all, I think all the pieces are here. So, 
we know from Choe that for it to be a computer, it would be too large to fit in this basement, seemingly. And I, it seems like they are aware that the basement goes deeper than the four floors, mm-hmm. even when they're doing this. What currently existing do scientists talk about as having uh, advanced computational power in a very small space that uh, goes beyond what modern computing can do? The human brain. Who We've, we've learned that... Uh, there's been another person who is criminally asymptomatic who disappeared. And the way that it's phrased is around, maybe that person died. But I don't intend I, to say any more on the matter. Yeah, don't say anything else. Said. Yeah. Uh, so this is what I think. And we, we also learned in the beginning of the episodes that we watched about the, the method to read sort of various little cues and things about a person in order to extrapolate with a high degree of accuracy, things about them and their life and various other details. That, we this, also can, learned, that this can be done. Yes. Yes. Saiga's method. We also learned that Saiga's method has the issue of when you teach it to people, some people stare too long into the abyss and their hues become cloudy, but there are some who this doesn't happen to. Say, perhaps people who would be criminally asymptomatic. And thus their hues would not get cloudy even when taught this method. This is what I think the civil system is, as I think it's the brains of people who are criminally asymptomatic who have been taught Saiga's method. And then are, are processing and viewing all of these instances and doing the judgments using Saiga's method as brains in the system that are, are doing the quote-unquote computational power because it's human brains. And then also probably inhabit uh, cyborg or android bodies occasionally, like the chief, who's probably also part of the civil system. Okay. So this is my theory. Hmm. <laughs> you, it's an interesting you theory. Don't, yeah, you don't have to do any responses. We can we can just move on to, to wrapping up. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting theory. Yeah. Um. Especially because we also learned uh, that Singuchi is just a brain. Everything else has been uh, turned into mechanics, but it is thus possible to put a brain into something and have the brain persist for up to 150 years. So, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't even need to replace the brains in the civil system that often. You wouldn't need to replace them, though. You would. You would need to. But there's that would like need to be two, a consideration. There's like one every two billion. Which is still, you're getting some. Sure. But you certainly couldn't afford to let any go to waste. Yeah, you really couldn't. So if you found someone who had it, you would definitely need to bring them in alive. They should not be killed. Hypothetically, yes. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway. (laughs) Um... You can find me. <laughs> uh, let me let me actually go into the the official uh, the official scroll down up. there. Next time uh, we will be watching episode seventeen through twenty two. That's the final six episodes. Just watch it until season one's over. Um, we're not watching season two anymore. You'll know soon. when it's over. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you have questions for us, please send them in to ghostdiverspod at gmail.com. Um, we'll. 
after that, we'll still have a movie. So there's still some time to get in emails. But if you have one now, just feel free to send it in now. Um, speaking of time until we do something, um, I want to say here, uh, as we're wrapping up, I'm, I'll mention this again, maybe at like the beginning of another episode or something. Um, our next season is going to be the Nana anime. Connor, both you and I have read the manga, Nanda. The anime has some slight differences, but it adapts the manga pretty directly. Um, and both have sort of a, this framing device of memory. Uh, you will get a sort of voiceover narration that is when the, especially at the beginning, it takes a while, uh, kind of unclear when that narration is coming, like is happening. When, when are those things being said? Uh, what degree of distance into the past is it? What are those memories? And that stuff eventually gets explained. All of this to say, I don't know how to talk about the Nana anime anymore without spoiling things that don't even happen in the anime because they only happen in the manga. Because so much of trying to unpack what's happening in Nana and what's happening around that stuff and around the relationship between characters involves the fact that, like, it is all framed as stories that are being told about something that happened in the past. And then people commenting on them in voiceover moments, often at the end of episodes or the end of chapters. So, when we record those Nana episodes, Connor, spoiler city. We are allowed to talk about anything we want to talk about with regards to Nana. Okay. We can talk about the very final volume that exists if we want to. We, we don't have to, but we can. If it comes up, if, if it feels relevant. And I'm saying this here, saying, and we'll, we'll obviously see this in the intro episode. You got to give them a chance to read, well. the, read the manga. I encourage people to read the manga Nana before going into that season. And I want to give people a little bit of a heads up here in case they are listening along with all the podcasts. Start reading now so you have time or, you know, soon, or at least figure out how you want to do it uh, because we, we're just going to talk about it. We're, we're going to talk about all of it. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't I know like how that. else to do that and feel satisfied with the conversations we're having if I can't talk about what's happening with like memory and time. Yeah. So, and I, I want to talk about the manga more too because yeah. we tried to do it as the New Year special, and then it was mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, we don't have nearly. This is a season of Ghost Divers. This is not a one episode <laughs> thing. Yeah, um, and so, so we're gonna start it as like the anime and talk about it, and then at some point we'll do the manga. Who knows if we do it just as like one year of ghost divers we just do the manga or you know pondering Puton ends and we decide to do it i don't i don't know how that's going to work out at some point i think we're just going to do the manga as well yeah um but even going into the anime i just want to warn people like just read the manga now if you want to watch along with that season yeah um, they, they've been warned yeah uh so anyway um please support the network uh, go to exportodd.io. That'll take you to the Patreon. If you don't want to or can't give us money right now, uh, you'll still find links to a bunch of the podcasts there. So you can find the free feeds. 
Uh, if you enjoy our podcast, please tell your friends about them, uh, especially people who you think you would enjoy them. We don't do advertising. Um, we don't have like big fundraiser things where for like two weeks, every single podcast that you listen to from the network is doing like an NPR style uh, fundraiser drive to get people to subscribe uh, that has various benefits, uh, including some bonus episodes, but not nearly as bonus, many bonus episodes as we do. Um, and some of those bonus episodes like weirdly take advantage of their children and have their children record podcasts, which I think is very bizarre. So with a child, I would, I would feel very unethical using my child to fundraise and having them record podcasts that go out to the public listen to. Um, people know <laughs> who I'm calling out if they do. No, NPR doesn't, but somebody else uh, does. Okay. Despite gotcha. the fact that uh you know you 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 do give that money but also they have like they do like advertising like every single episode has like multiple commercials for like Casper or whatever the fuck podcasts are advertising these days. Those like vitamins or whatever. There's so much podcast. We don't run ads. You we don't run ads. <laughs> No, nope. we for are inverters. Un- we are unlike them. They say that they're listener supported. We are entirely listener supported. One hundred percent listener supported. Besides, um, and also we we do better podcasts and deserve the morning money more. So give us some money if you can't. <laughs> if you can't spread the word about us, um, I will encourage people who have enjoyed my Teriyama Shuji talk. Uh, one, go listen to Ornate Stairwells. Uh, if you go to exportodio slash Ornate Stairwells, um, when you're hearing this, it'll be like Tuesday in the free feed. But if you if you give a dollar, you can already listen to the episode Em and I did about throw away your books, rally in the streets. Um, strangely, do not get nearly as much into Teriyama Shuji in that episode as I do in this <laughs> one, but <laughs> it is what it is. Um, welcome to Ghost Irish. I've had multiple people who have been having me talk about Teriyama Shuji lately, and this is the last one that I have recorded. And so it's the one where I'm the most just like, I guess I just got to really talk about it. And this is Ghost Irish. You've completely developed your, your viewpoint. Yeah. <laughs> um, because the other one is, and I believe this is going to be a $5 exclusive, so you, you can't listen to it unless you're a $5 patron. Um, I'm going to be on Coffee and Comic Books. Uh, we've are actually already recorded this. Uh, Rick had me on to talk about uh, Golden Pollen, or Gold Pollen. I always say uh, Golden Pollen, and it's not Gold Pollen. Uh, gold Pollen and Other Stories by Hayashi Seichi. Um who worked for Garo, did like a number of stuff for Garo, which was like an underground uh, comic magazine, basically, or like independent comic, comic magazine in Japan. Um, and also, I think Garo kind of generally, but uh, Hayashi in particular had ties to ATG, the Art Theater Guild, um, which was sort of this like uh, independent art house theater, um, both like theater Terry Yamashuji uh were doing things in a, like a playhouse or whatever and uh theater were showing movies and so uh he was also sort of involved with that um and did the art direction for throw away your books rally in the streets so we talk a little bit about that we talk a little bit about the the art theater guild um I talk about how I didn't enjoy any specific comic that much in it but I kind of like all of them together in the same way that like a lot of art theater guild and like tearing Shuji stuff and things is like feels weirdly like a compilation of stuff and like they interact 
interrelation between things is what's interesting. Um, anyway, highly recommend checking out that episode when it comes out, which will be later this month. Um, so that's my, my big spiel, but I'm like really trying to drive the network right now. Um, because times have just been tough for the Blakes, um, Autumn and Nora, uh, and like Autumn has just been so burnt out that they are taking a month off. Um, and I don't want people to not support the, the network because one co-host is deciding to value their mental health for a little bit. I want people to extra support the network because of that. So, um, that's it for my spiel. I'll call out, uh, Pondering Puton as well. Uh, the podcast you and I do where we just, we do like extended weird comedy bits. Some of the time. Sometimes, sometimes I may be breaking down barriers between the listener and us as I bring people into weird bits. Yeah, we, we try to. We've, cer- we've certainly done that. Yeah. Um, no one's and then also, this song yet. Yeah, no one has. And I'm, I've given up now that we're past this volume. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. Um, and then around the long fire, uh, abnormalmapping.com slash long fire on hiatus this month while Em and I are doing ornate stairwells, but we'll be back in August. So, uh, go check that out. We're reading through Icelandic sagas. Um, at some point we'll probably drop that and just do something else, but that's going to be like Em and I's continuing thing. I'm assuming, uh, we both enjoy podcasting even when sometimes we're bored of the thing that we're talking about. <laughs> so, um, anyway, that's my whole big spiel. Follow us at ghost divers pod on Twitter. Um, ghost divers on co-host. Uh, you can follow me at Fox Omnia on basically any social media platform that I'm on. Uh, where can people find you, Connor? Y'all can find me at Reble, R-E-B-B-L-E, A-I-S on Twitter and co-host. Uh, and that's it. Yeah. We had some good spiels in yeah. that one. I guess, I guess this is where we say goodbye. Yeah. This is where we just sit in silence for another few minutes. Just bask in the silence. It's like a performance in and of itself. Well, now that you said that, uh, no, no, we can't. We can't do it anymore. So, oh. uh, yeah. Thanks, everybody. And see you next time. Yeah, Bye. Yeah,
I do a drink check to to get us started. Yeah, who's who do you want to have go first? <clears throat> who went first last time? Was it you? I think it was me. Okay, <clears throat> I'll go first this time. So, um, once again, I have uh, Mad Trees Psychopathy uh, IPA. The, yeah, the, the tropical variant, <laughs> uh, which I still don't really understand. Um, but I, I explained my reasoning for choosing this last time, so I think it's still relevant. Um, yeah, we're still doing psychopaths, so uh, I didn't really change anything up, but I count this as a thematic um, drink check. Uh, Psychopathy. Yeah, it's like almost a homophone. So yeah, I think in Japanese you'd be even more of of a homophone. I don't know if it'd be a, a full homophone, but I, I I think it would be even closer because I know there's no like th sound. So mm-hmm. I think it's it's normally more of a z or or s. Let's see. What the? I just want to see what the katakana is. Su. Pa, pasu. Okay, so maybe I'm assuming it would be like uh, passe, like S E, and then I. Yeah, probably. If it was psychopathy, but yeah, what do I know? Um. Uh. So. I will. So I did change it up a little bit in one way, which is that I'm, I poured the beer into a glass this time instead of just like drinking it straight out of the can. I thought that drinking it out of the can was more of like a psychotic thing to do. Yeah. Um, and this, this seems more refined. Uh, this is what Sanguji would do. He would put it in a glass. So I'm I'm pouring one out for uh Toyohisa Sanguji. Uh oh I I looked it up. Um if you were writing out psychopathy in uh katakana, it would be psychopashi. Oh yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah. Okay. So close. Um very yeah. close. Very close. Uh one one final comment I'll make on this beer. The color is really nice. Uh and I have it in my like amber glass. Uh it, it matches really well with the glass. So it's just got like this really strong radiant um golden like amber color on it. Uh it makes it look a lot more attractive. So I'm I'm a little more excited to drink it this time. Uh, and then second and third, I have iced oolong tea, which has come into favor with me <laughs> uh, the last couple months with it being really hot and needing caffeine. Yeah. Uh, and then just normal water in this uh, PBR glass that I have. I could have put the beer, the uh, psychopathy beer in the PBR glass, but that just seemed too disrespectful to PBR uh, to have another beer brand in there. So I have water in that um, 
I won this glass at UChicago in the, uh, <clears throat> do you remember, I assume it existed when you were there, but there was like that pub that the university runs. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Was it just called it, the it's pub? It's like a, maybe, it's the one that's like a little bit of like a beer garden kind of vibe. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty nice. Um, but yeah, I won it. I won it there for some reason. <laughs> I can't remember like how or what the context was, but yeah, uh, it's it's stuck around. Uh, so that's my drink check. Um, for my so I have water in here, um, and then the the cocktail that I made, um, I'm calling the uh, criminally asymptomatic, uh, the criminally asymptomatic. Asymptomatic or asymptomatic syndrome. Yeah. Um, it was the first time I said that full phrase out loud and realized mm-hmm. that I, I like was stumbling over it. Cause it, it's a mouthful. Yeah, you, need, asymptomatic you needed to syndrome. create the, yeah. the linguistic pathway in your brain. Yes, I did. <laughs> um, and so my, my, my plan with this is one, I did more Malort than last time. It's a full ounce of Malort. <laughs> Okay. And so I, I I started with that. I agree with this as the, so as the premise is that I needed more, <laughs> but then I wanted to do what I the best that I could to make the drink white, yes. not like not like a clear like see through, but like white. Mm-hmm. Um. So it also has, and I I wanted to like also add stuff that might intensify it a little bit. Um. Like if I was adding any sort of ingredient to try and get something, I would do the one that would have like the most kind of intensity to it. Um. So I wanted to add a clear liquor to, to help make it clearer first, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, sort of dilute the the color of the uh, the Malort in here. What does the Malort look like when, because I've only ever like seen Malort <clears throat> in darkness going from a shot glass into my mouth. Yeah. Um, let me see if I can get a, it's like a greenish yellow hue. Okay. Um, you would think I would know that. After yeah. all the Malort I've had in my life. And so part of the reason why I was also then drawn to, like, felt even more like what I should be doing as a Malort is because that sort of greenish yellow hue is going to be like the, you know, the green cloudy uh, um, hue that would be in the, the I was like losing the, the hue, <laughs> the hue. I was right. saying the yeah. word already. Uh-huh. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so for the the other clear liquor that I did, I did this like very intense baijiu that um, I got from uh, my my brother's uh, father in law in China. Will like whenever there's like a you know big visit or something, will give my brother a bo- bottle of really fancy, but it's like usually strong and like intensely floral, um, but like. I'm saying like intensely, like, and it's not like floral is in like, it kind of tastes like petals. It's like burning, but there's like this floral quality, but it's like kind of the, there's like a, a strange fruit flavor that you can't quite place. Okay. So like you, the, add, you added more burning to the Malort. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it has a high alcohol content. Mm-hmm. Um, I will point out, I did an ounce of that. So I started with like, and I, and I, while I was doing it, I would like taste a little, I was like, oh, that is, this is an intense drink. Then I went about trying to make it clearer. Uh, one, I did some elderflower look here. Um, 
This is to try and like soften a little bit of like the flavor, but also complement some of the floral stuff. And then also like add a little bit more into it to, you know, bulk it up. And so that was the end of the, the, um, but yeah, it was half an ounce. So it was like a one ounce each of the Baijo and the, the Malort and then half an ounce of the elderflower liqueur. Then I did a half an ounce of syrup. This is to, uh, like simple syrup, um, which one would sort of dilute it a little bit more to like a clearer color. Um, and then also is going to like sweeten it up a little bit. So when you drink it, you, you don't immediately get hit with like, oh my God, that was intense flavor. It like is more on the back end, right? Cause you get the okay. sweet at first. Um, and to also complement that I did some lime juice and then the rest is I did uh tonic, like tonic water. So you still get like some of the intensity from the tonic water and it has now come out into like a, a like frosted white color. That's very impressive. That like, you know, like the, white. yeah, like, you know, the, um, the Gatorade, the like white Gatorade. That's like, <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. Know yeah. It. I, it's like, I know it well. Yeah. <laughs> um, the like frost one or whatever. I think it's called mm. frost. Yeah. Um, yeah, that one where it has that sort of like frosty white color. So that's what I got it to. Um, so it's now, uh, criminally asymptomatic. <laughs> That's nice. You should take a picture. Well, it's probably dark where you are. Yeah. In the darkness of your of the cave. Uh, but maybe I don't know. Maybe you can still take a picture if the color is visible. Just for posterity. Yeah, yeah I will I will try my best to get a photo of this. Or you can use flash. I forgot flash existed. Oh yeah, let's see what flash does. And then you can just drop it in the yeah the chat. We can admire it later. Uh, that's impressive. When you're when you're like talking about the composition of it, I was trying to imagine what it would taste like. And um, I you still when you first get the hit. Oh, and so at the the very end too, I wanted to like further hide it when you go to drink it. So I did. Um, some grapefruit bitters and a little bit of cardamom bitters. And so when you smell it, you get this like sort of like, Oh, this is just going to be kind of, uh, you know, a little bit acidic, but it like smells bright. Um, like I, I wanted to make a deceptive drink where you see it and you, you smell it and you don't actually know what it's going to taste like from that. I, like I, feel I, like, I deceived you. I feel like this drink tastes like what I imagine poison would taste like. <laughs> And so you drink it, and at the very beginning, you get, like, that that burst of citrus and that little bit of sweetness from the bit of simple syrup in it, and it kind of, it tastes like it's, like, a, kind of a sweet gin and tonic at first, and then you get hit with the aftertaste, which is just Baijo and Malort, oh. and you're like, oh, what was that? <laughs> oh, I'm dead now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my friend's been murdered. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's perfect. Actually, yeah, I think you nailed that one. So, um, okay, well, don't get too. It does, uh, it does have a. It does have a hell of an aftertaste. I don't get say. too fucked up on on criminally asymptomatic. Yeah, I've been sipping. phenomena. Well, if you um, uh, if you suddenly start like, you know, 
It, she suddenly stopped breathing. <laughs> At some point, I'll, I'll know why. Okay, I've got, I got a, a photo here. I'm gonna send this to the chat. You can okay. you can take a look at it real quick. Um, I'm going doesn't to, that just to look like doesn't the... this? Doesn't this just look like a pleasant cocktail? Yeah, it, it looks very pleasant. Yeah, uh, and it, it is white. Like it's perfectly mm-hmm. like clear white. Um, it's it's more of like a transparent. It's it's leaning towards the transparent white still it's not like a opaque white yeah um but i i like it feels yeah feels right again it's it's like the the closest in color that i can describe it to just for uh, like people at home is that like gatorade frost the the like glacier one or whatever Mm -hmm. that is just like the white gatorade yeah um it's like maybe a touch clearer but now I have to, um, to quench, or not quench. <laughs> I just Googled Gatorade Frost, and then the word quench isn't even in front of me. I don't know why I said that. Um, I have to I have to recall uh, the, <laughs> the look of this. Uh, okay, so it's Gatorade Frost Glacier Cherry is the white one. Okay, yeah. Frost is like That's, the larger category. Yeah, in which Glacier have- Cherry is like my favorite one of them. The photo that I'm looking at this is actually slightly slightly blue almost. Maybe it's just the photo I'm looking at. Yeah. I don't think of it as slightly blue. I don't really like it, honestly. Yeah. Um one time I I bought it and I was like, "Oh yeah, it's that it's that shit, that white Gatorade like it's going to be great." Um, um I I, was like, I don't I remember how it white, tastes. And then I, started I love the white Gatorade. It. It's my favorite. It's just I don't know. Gatorade really went downhill. Have I complained about Gatorade rain before? <laughs> no. Do we have time for this? <laughs> Once upon a time, Gatorade had this. I think they still sell Gatorade rain, but it's like abs- it's trash now. Or yeah. they like had new launches of it, like formulas uh, over the years. And they were like all bad except for the, but the one that they had, um, I'm gonna send this to the to the chat. I don't know if I've I, ever had this one. I don't know how to how to like describe this label or the design of the label, but it's like um, the one that specifically has this label was so good. Uh, and then they, I mean, I used to come home from. Um, oh yeah, here, yeah, the green one. Oh man. This is my fucking shit. This was so good. Um, I used to come home from like football practice and just pound like two whole things of the of this. Yeah, I I would describe like the 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 part that says Gatorade has like a very large Gatorade lightning bolt with like and it's like orange. It's the old with, style like Gatorade yeah, logo with the font with like Gatorade green. written across it in green, and then underneath in like. Um, massive lettering. Yeah, massive, like blocky letters, but but it's the style where, like, like if you look at the A, the the right bar is really really thick, and then the the left bar and the like crossbar are very thin. Yeah, and it's like it's leaning 
so yeah. so far to the it's, right. It's yeah, it's it's very italicized. Yeah. Um yeah, that's the word for that. <laughs> italicized. Yeah. Uh but yeah, that that stuff was really good. They got rid of it. I will never understand why. Yeah. It was probably too good and made everyone realize how shit like the main types of Gatorade are. And then they were like, "Oh, we can't." What if we could yeah. replace it with something else? People would still think our main line is good, and then they would also buy the new thing because, like, just to have a change of pace. Um, also, the letters here. Uh, so, like, the bottom is sans serif. The top has uh, only like a left leaning serif, um, and it's not on the A, which would have like a slant there. But like the R, I, and N have like that little serif line, but it's like going to the left so that like the the slanted right corner you just kind of get that sharp you know yeah um that sharp angle the uh the it's colors... almost like it's like moving the serif gives it like a sense of it moving to the right yeah i i think you i think you nailed that yeah. Um, my only other comment is that the color on these is to, to me is a lot more pleasant to the eye um, the flavor, it was a lot lighter, so it wasn't quite as like, uh, the drink itself was like a, a little bit thinner and more watery. And then the, the flavor, I, I don't know if they use less sugar or not, but it was like, it wasn't as sweet. Um, yeah. and the color kind of reflects this. It's like a paler, lighter color. Um, it's just, it's more pleasant in every way uh, um so anyway i have to like have electrolyte drinks sometimes because otherwise i get uh really bad cramps in like my feet and legs um and so like every day i have one but i just do there's these like noon hydration tablets and you you and um and those are the ones that i started using because there's no sugar in them um and it's also nice because you can just put it into like a glass of water and it like fizzes up. I think there's a, a podcast that we recorded. I forget which one where I, I mistakenly put one into some sparkling water and it just made the thing like explode. And I like had to put it up to my mouth to, to drink the fizz coming out. Um, but yeah, it is nice because it's like a Alka-Seltzer like fizzes up and it just mixes itself, um, which I prefer to like having to like screw on the bottle and like shake it a whole bunch to get the powder all mixed up. Um, so, yeah. I don't, I think I do vaguely remember that. Yeah. I remember us, it was, we were probably laughing at the time. That would probably. be typical. I don't remember if it, I think it was talked about on Mike, but I don't know if the part of me shoving it in and having to put my mouth over the, the can hole as it like fizzed up into my mouth happened on Mike. I don't think it did. Okay. We need someone who really remembers, who A, listens to the other drink checks and then B, remembers them all. Uh to chime in on these or on this, uh, yeah. on this question. Um, anyway, should we, should we get into the podcast? Do we have episode there? Sh- we should break up down episodes, but I don't, <laughs> uh, where would the lines be? We should um, probably do a cut before the 12. Yeah. The after stuff. 11. Yeah. Um, um, and then after, how did 14. you do those line breaks last time? 
Oh, horizontal line. There we go. <laughs> um, look, I've yeah. never done it before. <laughs> you're, um, you're so much better at me, like than me at formatting. I was just surprised that yeah, there was something that you weren't immediately familiar with. Um, yeah, and then we should do 14, 15, 16 all together. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then Ready to get into you, it? Yeah. Do you want... Uh, wait, hold on. Oh, like who's doing which? Yeah. Um, I'll go first. Okay. You're going to give me the re- the really long <laughs> 16? Well, that's not the reason why I did it. Okay. Um, maybe you'll uncover the, the reason later or deduce it. Okay. Um, also, for just a note for, for you, Connor, we can probably save the Teriyama Shuji stuff when we get to uh, 14 through 16, um, but then I'll probably end up talking back through, like, all of the, the uh, you know, killers of a few episodes. Okay. So Yeah, that's fine. All the, all the criminals assisted by Maki... Uh, Makishima. Yeah. Makishima. Okay. Uh, yeah, that that works just fine. Okay. Should we get into it? Yeah, let's do it. 